Hello, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea. And this is Valar Reredis. Valar Reredis is a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. R. Martin has said before, and will probably say it again, that A Song of Ice and Fire was meant to be reread. He designed it that way. So we're your tour guides on this journey, but even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. Along the way, so far, many of you have contributed to the podcast, and some of you contribute every single week. Some of those names that we mention of the regular contributors are probably getting pretty familiar by now. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Now, every episode of Valar Reredis winds up with at least 25 pages of notes. I mentioned that today of all days because, well, I kind of planned on mentioning it anyway. But as it turns out, this was the longest episode document we've had ever, uh, including scripted episodes. This is a 47-page document. Normally, like I said, they're around 25, maybe 35. They're usually closer to 35 to 25, but whatever. So this is one of the longest ones we've had. And one of the benefits to becoming a member Westorian who pledges financial support is you can get access to these scripts. Now, because this one is so long, and that is against our stated goal of trying to have shorter episodes, well, uh, one small mistake I suppose I made was neglecting to remember that the first chapter of each POV tends to have pack more of a punch because George is setting up the entire book set of plot arcs for each character. Anyway, this is not a bad thing. You should check out the Isle of Faces podcast, which is Joe Buckley's show. And that covers all the stuff that we're not able to cover in Valerie Reedus. I expect this particular episode of Isle of Faces, aka Scraps and Scrolls for the Valerie Reedus edition, will be particularly excellent because a lot of these extra pages are Joe's and we're just not going to have time for them all today. There's no way we're going to do 47 pages. So some of that's going to get skipped, but not really skipped because it will pop up in Joe's podcast. Now, if you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. That's one of the best ways to get involved and participate. But you can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, Facebook, probably the, well, not probably, certainly the largest of our groups. We also have Flick, which is nice and tight. There's nothing else going on but the discussion on these chapters. Discord, much broader and better technology probably than the others. And Slack for patrons only and those smaller, more intimate discussions about random things and about the chapters. This week, we have, as I said, five chapters. All of them are first chapters, starting off with Tyrion 1, the gang makes big plans, aka the one where Tywin can't prove Tyrion isn't his. Davos 1, 
National Lampoon's Blackwater Vacation, a.k.a. the one where Davos is stranded. Sansa won. The gang wants Sansa for Willis, a.k.a. the Queen of Thorns, gets her cheese. John won. The gang meets Mance, a.k.a. the one where John lies well. And Daenerys won. The gang goes to Slaver's Bay, a.k.a. the one where Jorah gets fr- frisky. Shout out to Daryl Hall, or sorry, Daryl Hall. <laughs> Daryl Hall and John Oates. No, shout out to Daryl Blake of the Mance Raider Tribute Band, whose shirt I'm wearing today, appropriately, of course. Uh, Mance Raider is our, uh, we get to meet him today. So figured that would fit pretty well. Now, George R. R. Martin loves to tell parallel stories and use themes across multiple POVs. And that gets missed if we focus over much on singular chapters. So we always try to take a step back and look at them as a group a little bit, if not more. A Song of Ice and Fire is too complex to view through one lens, as after all. So a variety of looks produces the best results, in my humble opinion anyway. If we focus on just one thing, we miss the big picture. And if we focus too much on the big picture, we miss the little details. And those little details are often actually quite huge. They're just presented as little. So thus, as we often do, a few words on themes before the individual chapters. The song part of A Song of Ice and Fire comes back around as a theme here. With even greater intensity, The Storm of Swords introduces us to a number of important songs and gives us lyrics to many that were only named before. It's a theme that kicks off, I'd say, with Sansa 1 and holds steady mostly throughout the entire book, which ends with the Merritt Frey epilogue in which Tom O'Sevens, a singer, sings Jenny's song while sitting on the tomb of one of those very kings who sat high in the hall and is very much gone. Mere paragraphs before the introduction of Lady Stoneheart, a mother to a king who was gone, as well as something of a ghost herself. So you know how George does. He just packs it all in there. So much thematic, so much thematic intensity all at once. But it begins sooner. To start this musical journey and an opening act of sorts, we have both the bear and the maiden fair and the Dornishman's wife getting prominent screen time with full lyrics. Both of the songs have deep foreshadowing. A song about a bear kissing a maiden who doesn't want it. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? A song about dueling an angry Dornishman. (laughs) Yep, that's meant to sound familiar also. More detail to come on those, of course. It's not that simple. These and other songs will take a temporary backseat to the main stage act, The Reigns of Castamere, later in the book. But we'll take note of every other song along the way. After The Red Wedding, for example, The Purple Wedding will feature seven singers and an eighth, Simon Silvertongue, who will try to force his way into that group by writing a song that blackmails Tyrion. And Tyrion's where we start today. Tyrion had a haunting song in his head quite a lot. It was a huge part of his arc in the last book. Though that song isn't present in this first chapter for Tyrion, the inspiration is. Tysha's presence is named and felt as it is so often in Tyrion's chapters. Tyrion won. The gang makes big plans, a.k.a. the one where Tywin can't prove Tyrion isn't his. Right to the opening quote. He woke to the creak of old iron hinges. Oh, Aaron Damphair? Is that you? I certainly never caught that little similarity before. Our pattern of starting with the first line of the book was mostly meant to be fun, but hey, it's been more than that. That's a, a nice catch. Aaron Damphair is haunted by the sound of rusted iron hinges because he associates it with Euron coming at night to abuse him. Tyrion doesn't fear that kind of abuse, but he does fear 
violence and his elder sibling, which is also similar to Aaron. Quote. When he saw a shape moving toward him, Tyrion shivered. Here in Magor's hold fast, every servant was in the queen's pay, so any visitor might be another of Cersei's cat's paws sent to finish the work Sir Mandon had begun. And we do find out later Cersei once twisted baby Tyrion's penis. Like, huh. and do you really think that was a one-time thing? Probably not. She probably did other nasty things to him. Two of his three closest family members blame him for his mother's death. Like, ouch. And one of them does it in this chapter. Tywin says horribly cruel things and one or two peculiar things. We're more interested in the latter, but not because the former is important. It's more that the particulars of Tywin's treatment of Tyrion are of interest here, but they aren't exactly revelations. No one missed, generally speaking, Tywin being terrible to Tyrion on the first read, but there's definitely some nuance and related backstory that can't escape notice. So of course the shadow turns out to be Bronn, excuse me, Sir Bronn of the Blackwater, his sigil a chain engulfed in green flame with a gray background, or as they say, a gray field in uh, heraldry. He gives Tyrion information he's been craving in his own way. Tyrion is in a spot similar to his brother and now Catelyn, cut off from the world and desperate for information. Bronn tells him quite a bit, giving shape to these formless anxieties. He thinks, whilst Tyrion lay drugged and dreaming, his own blood had pulled his claws out one by one. And it's reasonably accurate metaphor. Most of what he feared is true with regards to his loss of power, but there are things he hadn't considered, like the death of Lord Jocelyn Bywater, which he minds a lot, his loss of Tommen as a hostage due to Bywater's death, which he doesn't mind so much, and the whipping of Ali Yaya, which enrages him and is simultaneously why he doesn't mind the release of Tommen, because he'd have to carry out his threat to whip Tommen, which he promised to do if Ali Yaya was hurt. It's disturbing that Tyrion didn't immediately think, oh, well, she called my bluff. As it turns out, it wasn't Cersei who did it. It was Tywin. So that changes things. But at this moment, it's still a little odd and shows you the state of mind Tyrion's in that he doesn't immediately say, no, I would never torture my, my own nephew in his own mind. He hasn't forgotten to repay Cersei for this, even if it won't be Tommen. He's a Lannister and a Lannister always pays his debts. He's going to get her in some way. But he's too focused on Cersei with regards to Mandon Moore. Even if it was her, and of course it, it might have been, he's wrong to not consider that it could have been someone else. He, he's too focused on this one possibility. I appreciate that Bronn's information isn't perfect, though. It's really neat. The battle was so chaotic, and he himself was at the Winch Towers. So much of what he tells Tyrion about the battle is based on what he heard. He didn't get to see the whole battle like some narrator. No one did. Not even us. So there's, there's, inform, there's misinformation, there's details, there's things Tyrion has to piece together by getting uh, things from other people. Sir Bronn has also been dismissed, despite his title, which Tyrion is almost relieved by since it means he can continue to keep him. He was worried that someone else would hire Bronn away from him. And it likely helps him trust what Bronn is telling him. If he had found out that Bronn had been hired by somebody else, he would already be questioning the information he's being given. Tyrion's clansmen are treated a lot like how Tyrion himself is treated. In particular, the Black Ears are chased off by Lannister men, thus likely on Tywin's command. The Burn men under Timot One-Eye have returned to the Vale, much better armed, and the Stone Crows under Shaga decided to stay in the Kingswood. The Tyrells are being hailed as heroes. He doesn't hate the Tyrells for it, but he hates that King's Landing doesn't recognize him too. He hasn't yet learned, nor has Bronn, that it was a Tyrell that pretended to be Renly and inspired the Renly's ghost stories. 
In this chapter, Tyrion starts to consider that Renly isn't dead after all because of that. Pretty quickly, he's, he learns the truth, but it's interesting to show just how much this misinformation is working its way through everyone. Even Tyrion, who is, you know, on the command side of things, doesn't know that that, that was Garland Tyrell in Renly's army. Although he will soon. Already, it's a very different Tyrion from A Clash of Kings. He was a smooth operator in the last book, buoyed by a sense of purpose and winning the war and the authority granted to him as hand of the king. His chapters reflected that vitality and his intellect was on display alongside his humanity and his weakness. But now, could he possibly intrigue as effectively as he did before? He's lost so many of his resources, so many of his warriors. He's no longer hand. He's made enemies. He's physically hampered and his emotions are in tatters. He's, he's paranoid now. So what does one do when they're feeling all like that, when you're out of sorts, when you're feeling at a low point? Exactly. That's what you do exactly what Tyrion does. The best thing you can do when you're anxious and feeling underappreciated and you're sick is to go see Tywin Lannister, a man who is known for being sympathetic and understanding and patient with displays of weakness. <laughs> On his way to see his father, he encounters a few people. There's lots of Tyrell Bannerman about nowadays. They've helped win the battle. And they're winning the love of the people. And of course, plan to stay for the upcoming royal wedding, a.k.a. the purple wedding. He speaks to Sir Adam Marbrand, who is head of the City Watch now and looking hard for Tyrek Lannister, who vanished during the riot. Check with Varys, I'd say. No one seems to mention that. <laughs> Marbrand fills in more of the story of the Lannister slash Tyrell attack on Stannis's flank. And Tyrion realizes that maybe if they just come a little earlier or if he'd waited a little longer to lead his sortie, the battle would have been over first. In other words, maybe he didn't have to do what he did. Maybe he could have saved his nose and his health by waiting a little bit longer. What we have is Tyrion losing a lot of power and health and for no real acclaim or reward since his bravery has largely gone unremarked. Ironically, one of the people who does note his bravery is going to be the aforementioned Garland Tyrell, who, uh, a.k.a. Renly's ghost, when he sits next to Tyrion during the Purple Wedding. But the point being, if Tyrion hadn't been wounded he would have been able to manage all this aftermath much more smoothly. He wouldn't have had his claws pulled while he was in bed, so to speak. And he also passes to Kingsguard, Sir Osmond Kettleblack, who's friendly, and of course he is. He took bribes from Tyrion, and, well, no need to burn that bridge. Maybe Tyrion will send him some more bribes. And Sir Marin, who isn't friendly, but doesn't hesitate to let Tyrion pass when the name Lord Tywin is thrown about. It's much different from the opening scene in Clash of Kings when... Sir Mandon wouldn't let Tyrion pass. But this is Sir Marin, a different guy, and the situation is different. Still, I think it's a small parallel to be noted. Tyrion arrives in his former quarters where Tywin is writing important letters. These are most likely letters from Sybil Spicer and Walder Frey and information on, if not communication directly from, Roose Bolton. So yeah, they are important letters. Tywin knows Rob broke his marriage pledge by now, and that Bolton sent part of the Northern Army on a suicide mission to Duskendale. In other words, red wedding pre-planning as well as the agreeing on rewards and such. Uh, thanks to Nina, we have a partial count of the many different ways Tywin is a hypocrite in this chapter alone. Only this chapter. There's plenty of other examples of Tywin's hypocrisy in other chapters, but just this one, there's quite a lot. But it's, and we're going to base it off of this quote here. You are an ill-made, devious, disobedient, spiteful little creature full of envy, lust, and low cunning. Okay, well, let's unpack that a little bit. Ill-made. We'll come back to that when we talk about the parentage stuff. 
Devious. Okay, Mr. Red Wedding. That's what's D. Who are you calling devious? Disobedient. Tywin went against his father on a number of things and did so publicly. Okay. All right. Spiteful. This might be the biggest hypocrisy of all. Tywin is extremely spiteful. He takes things very personally and repays perceived insults with massive interest. Of course, all the while pretending he's above it. (laughs) From the tale of him staring down the Lord who made the comment about Tywin's producing gold from his bowels to the tales Jamie tells about the oubliettes his father puts people in down deep in Casterly Rock for apparently little more than insults or, you know, things like stares. I mean, jeez. Lust? Ooh, boy, since Tywin is the very one who had his own secret tunnel to a brothel built, well, probably. That's not 100% proven, but it's certainly very likely. Still, there's nothing wrong with engaging those services, but don't be someone who says it's wrong while doing it. (laughs) It's also a little weird to be against lust in this setting. It isn't really frowned upon that much societally in Westeros. Lust is that, I mean. Little creature. Okay. Rude, but it's the only part of the sentence that isn't hypocritical. Tywin isn't little. Maybe maybe he is on the inside, but... (laughs) Envy. It's normal to return Valyrian steel swords to the family of the deceased, but Tywin wanted some in his family so bad he melted down the Starks and made two. All right. And then last but not least, low cunning again, the Red Wedding, but also the drowning of the rains. That that was clever, but it was low. No dummy is going to pull that one off, but it was evil. Though Tywin comes off as inhuman because of all this, far more of a monster than the way Tyrion is portrayed, there are very human elements that work in Tywin's psychology. In other words, it's a lot easier to analyze Sir Gregor than Sir Tywin. There's just, or than Lord Tywin. There's just a lot more going on with Tywin. To be clear though, even Sir Gregor has some nuance to his profile. So, of course, there's more with Tywin, who's more complicated. Now, this doesn't excuse Tywin's behavior, but it is interesting and humanizing to unpack it and kind of figure out what's going on here. Like it is with Chet, disgust can impair analysis. It's hard to feel grossed out and say, hey, let's take a deep dive on that. But that's what we're doing. His hatred of Tywin's, or rather, his hatred of Tyrion's relationship with Shay is deep-seated. It reminds him of his own father, who after... His mother, Tywin's mother, Tyrion's grandmother, Jane Marbrand's death, had a very public relationship with a woman who shares Shay's profession. So Lord Titos let this woman wear their mother's jewels and treated her in general as he treated his own wife. And Tywin hated it so much. And he was young when it happened, so it was formative for Tywin. And it's still with him. Now, he may have dealt with it pretty well, if his wife was still around or had been around, no one's going to get this man to change now. And the one person who could have, maybe, that's not even a certainty that Joanna could have moved him. But if she could have, well, she's long gone. You can't teach an old lion new tricks either. As usual, though, Tyrion isn't great with his father either. Not that he's nearly as bad as, as Tywin, but... He just loses a lot of himself when trying to interact with his dad. He's just not, it's like he's performance anxiety or he's just thinking of all the ways his father is awful and that short circuits a lot of his uh, greater intellect. His assertion that, quote, it seems to me I saved your bloody city is an exaggeration. Tyrion does deserve quite a lot of recognition and acclaim, but it's true that his efforts would not be enough without his father's arrival and without the Tyrell Alliance. And that's ironic because The Tyrell Alliance is a large part Tyrion's idea, but he decides not to take credit for it because he thinks it would be too peevish. Yet he's clearly peevish about other things. 
The way the campaign came out is a knock on Tywin to be sure, because Tywin said he was always more worried about Stannis, but almost found himself in the West when Stannis attacked King's Landing. It was purely because of the accident of Edmure stopping him and just the fallout from that. To be fair, Tyrion doesn't know any of that, though, so he can't exactly criticize his father. Another example, Tyrion is is peevish about not being Hand anymore. And he's just wrong on that. He was always meant to be a temporary hand in his father's place. And with his father being there in the city, well, clearly he's taking his job back. What gets me about this is beyond the not claiming credit for the Tyrell marriage. He was lying abed thinking of legitimate complaints, like how his clansmen were treated. But he doesn't take credit for these things that would give him a lot more acclaim. If he suspected Littlefinger sent Mandon Moore after him, as we do, then I suspect Tyrion would be more likely to say a few things here and worry less about how it sounds. One honor he doesn't even think of himself getting that sticks out to me, though, and I never considered this before on any of our prior rereads or anything. I've never seen this talked about anywhere. And it's, it's pretty straightforward once you get on this path. Bronn tells Tyrion that every single man he fought with at the Winch Towers was knighted and by the Kingsguard, which matters a lot because we all know that the man who knights you, you you gain honor based on who gives you your knighting. Now, Tyrion was not knighted and he doesn't even think of it. No one mentions it. Not him, not Tywin, not Bronn. No one's like, hey, you should have been knighted. Tyrion leads a heroic charge. His father wants to know what madness possessed him and wonders why he removed his helm. That's what he says? (laughs) None of this should preclude, none of what his father believes, none of what Tyrion believes should preclude what is a very standard reward for non-knights who perform feats in battle. Leading men through danger in battle and or killing men in battle, Tyrion did both. I mean, basically, you can can chalk it up to, or, or... boil it down to the term conspicuous valor. If you perform conspicuous valor, you get knighted. It's not that high of a bar to clear. I mean, it is if you were like a real person having to go into battle. But in terms of what we see people get knighted for, going into battle, surviving, you know, not running away, that's, a lot of times that's enough. Tyrion did way, way, way more than that. I mean, Davos was knighted for brave sailing, smuggling. He didn't do any fighting. I mean, he did in Blackwater, but he didn't get do any fighting in the battle where he got knighted. It wasn't even a battle. It was, like I said, it was a siege. He snuck right in there. It was brave and it required skill, but there was no fighting. Tyrion kind of got treated like Chewbacca here. Other people were getting rewards all around him and he does not. <laughs> he, he got some rewards, certainly, but not for his battle courage. He didn't get rewarded for the battle. He got rewarded for his politicking and kind of for just being a Lannister. He was given Master Corn. And he was given, well, will be given Sansa, which is gross, but that is a large reward. But he should have been knighted as well. It doesn't cost money, right? <laughs> it's not that, not that that should slow down Tywin Lannister. It's a major statement on Westerosi society that Tyrion himself doesn't, it doesn't even occur to him. He's like, you know what? They should have knighted me. It doesn't even cross his mind. It's so ingrained in him that his physical stature makes it out of the question. So you can't help but note Given how much we talk about knighthood and the things that make a warrior, all these things, they come up so much in Jamie's chapters, Brienne's chapters. We come up with in Santa's chapters too because she thinks about these things and she deals with Sandor Clegane a lot. So 
Sandor, Brienne, and Jamie, we've talked about a lot in this sort of knighthood triumvirate. But with those characters in mind, you can't help think of, in particular, Brienne, or, you know, meaning a capable or brave fighter who isn't a man. Brienne's literally not a man, and Tyrion is seen as less than one, half man, things like that. Comparisons between Tyrion and Brienne don't really go far in other areas, but here, when it comes to knighthood, they have this very major thing in common. Not that Tyrion's a great fighter, but he did, you know, he did fight and he showed bravery. So that also ties Tyrion to Sandor, like I said, someone who absolutely would be a knight if he didn't reject it. So it's notable that Tyrion took Sandor's place in the battle and that neither of them are knights. It's also quite twisted that Tywin, a man who cares so very much about his house's reputation, would see a knighthood for Tyrion as a shameful thing because a man like him thinks knighting Tyrion would bring shame upon all knights. So it's, it's, it's kind of the inverse. Normally he's greedy for his house to get rewards and honors, but this one would somehow counteract things. Never mind that this is the man who enthusiastically uses Sir Gregor Clegane and Sir Amory Lorch. So we're told, we're basically to, to believe that Ty- Tyrion and Brienne and others are, these, these people would, would pervert the, in, the uh, Institute of Knighthood. But Sir Gregor and Sir Amory, no, they're perfectly fine. Yeah, see, that's why Sandor rejects the, the thing altogether. Tyrion's later upset about getting Master Coin as his reward, like I alluded to. But this is, again, a thing, a thing I disagree with him on. That's an important and prestigious post. But he seems unwilling to be anything less than a hand. That's very much too much like his father. It's very, very Taiwan-esque right there. Even the sight of the hand's necklace on his father bothers him, which, again, is just, that's his job, his necklace. Why are you so upset? <laughs> well, I get why he's upset. It's, he's, he's channeling. He's projecting that... He's projecting this kind of unfair uh, things that he's treated unfairly in for into this realm that's his father's actually not treating him unfairly. I kind of picture it, by the way, like Tyrion was the substitute teacher and he's really pissed off when the teacher <laughs> comes back. Like, what did you expect to happen? That's a good one. <laughs> so here's where I took my first drink of water of the episode. And I have to point out that last week I forgot to get a coffee or a water and I went the entire live stream without a drink. <laughs> I was a little scratchy by the end. So I've mentioned before that Tyrion's humor as a defense mechanism tends to go awry around his father. He's, he's often really funny and he, his sarcasm and jokes kind of can be disarming and can add a lot of lightness to a lot of scenes. But here, when he makes jokes around his father, they're just not clever or funny anymore. It, it's great writing, actually. It's funny to say these bad jokes are great writing. <laughs> But it's because George is showing us how much Tywin's presence causes Tyrion to revert to a lesser version of himself. Like I said before, it's, it's kind of like performance anxiety. It's a microcosm of, of that line when we first see Tywin, when Tyrion it, thinks of how aware, he feels really hyper aware of his shortcomings when his father's watching him. So I think that's just saying the same thing, rearing its head again. I mean, Tyrion is, nor like I said, he is normally funny. His, his, Falling back on that as a defense mechanism works most of the time because he's funny. So it's a skill he has. So it usually works with Cersei, with Varys, with Bronn, with the Klansmen. These are, these are all examples of which his humor, his, his glib tongue have worked out really well for him. But he would, I mean, he would love for his father to laugh at his jokes, but this is a man who doesn't laugh. He barely smiles. So if you're expecting a positive reaction from Tywin by these jokes, you got to bring your A game or better yet, don't play at all. But Tyrion's weakest jokes come in front of Tywin. And here comes the infamous moment where, Tywin, or where Tyrion asks for Casterly Rock. 
Tywin blames him for Joanna's death. And Tywin utters the much-discussed line. Men's laws give you the right to bear my name and display my colors, since I cannot prove that you are not mine. Now, the word prove gives the idea that Tywin could be saying Tyrion is not his true-born son. But he says, you are my son at the end of A Game of Thrones. So what does that mean? And he also tells Jamie, you are not my son uh, later in this book. So these are not isolated incidents. George definitely made this hazy. It's possible he's saying something about not really being Tyrion's father, but it's possibly just a, a, you know, a rejection. It perhaps says more about Tywin's parenting than Tyrion's parents, if that makes sense. I think for sure it does say a lot about Tywin's parents. Okay, it definitely says that. You're right. Yeah, I mean, he said it to Jamie, for example, and he did it, you know, meanly as like a punishment for him to say that. Yes. And so even if in actuality, for example, Tyrion isn't Tywin's, whether he knew that or not, he knew that it was a punishment to say such a thing and that it was reward to tell him in the first place that he was his son. That's a good point. You're, you're right. So he's, he's definitely playing on his own Tyrion's emotions because he knows Tyrion is sensitive about that. Yeah, and Jamie would be a little bit too. Less so, but still. Tywin accuses Tyrion of threatening his own family, which, well, yeah, he did. And we know Tywin cannot stand for that. Setting aside what we feel about these characters, just and little, knowing what we know about Tywin, that is a big, big no-no. Tyrion claims it was a threat he wasn't going to carry out. But we know he was just thinking earlier in the chapter how he might have to or else Cersei would know his threats are empty. Now, I don't actually think he would go through it, but it's telling that, again, that he doesn't immediately reject the notion and that Tywin brings it up here and Tyrion thinks of it differently. So I think Tyrion might even be lying to himself a little bit. I'm not sure. And again, Tywin throws Joanna in his face, blaming him. It's so very nasty. One of the cruelest things I can imagine a parent saying to their child. I mean, I can imagine doing worse, but as far as words, that's as bad as bad as it gets. And it's said in response to Tyrion saying, how can you think I'd hurt Tommen? Tywin's response is, why not? You killed your own mother. Why not your nephew? I mean, he doesn't say it exactly like that, but that's basically what he says. It would never be worthy of an excuse, but is Tywin in his mind angry in part because he suspects Tyrion is not his child? You know, that would, again... Not an excuse. None of none of the none of these things Tywin does is excusable, but they do have reasons behind them. And it would be interesting if his bitterness over his wife cheating on him, or his wife, you know, the pride from his being cuckolded. I don't know exactly what's going on in Tywin's head if it even happened, but you can clearly, by based on his personality, know that this would be a huge problem for him. There's quite a bit of information and news. We get further confirmation that when Roos Bolton ordered the attack on Duskendale. He was sending those men to their deaths. As for Stark, the boy is still in the West, but a large force of Northmen under Helmand Tallhart and Robert Glover are descending toward Duskendale. I've sent Lord Tarly to meet them while Sir Gregor drives up the King's Road to cut off their retreat. Tallhart and Glover will be caught between them with a third of Stark's strength. Duskendale? There was nothing at Duskendale worth such a risk. Had the young wolf finally blundered? Hmm. Well, not exactly, no. Well, yes, he had blundered, but not with Duskendale. After one of what Tywin calls Tyrion's lame japes, and yeah, as I said, it was lame, he mentions that he's busy writing letters, which Tyrion mocks. So yeah, these letters are important, as I said. 
Red Wedding pre-planning. Uh, Tywin already knows about the Jane Westerling thing, though he hasn't told uh, the rest of the council that, as he says later. And Walder Frey, of course, knows. And so does Ruth Bolton. Edmure has informed Bolton and Frey that Jamie is on the loose. Tywin doesn't yet know, but Bolton and Frey know that Rob has married Jane and broken his word, and Jamie has escaped, and Stannis has been beaten, and that the Lannisters are marrying the Tyrells. So from the Bolton-Frey side, you can really see why they're eager to change sides. As dirty as it is, you can see that the dominoes have really fallen all for the Lannisters, and things do not look good for the young wolf, even though he hasn't lost a battle yet. Only the Boltons and Freys know all of those things, though. That's a really important thing. Only the Boltons and Freys know all those pieces of information. They know about all the different battles. They know about Jamie. They know about the marriage to Jane Westerling. And they know about the, the battle at King's Landing and the Tyrell-Lannister marriage. The, the Starks don't know all those things. Stannis doesn't know all those things. Tywin doesn't even know all those things. He knows most of them. Tywin also mentions how Ares was a man that required applause i.e. someone who needed love. That's something fleshed out more in the world book, but it's definitely true. Along with Jamie having memories of Ares, that story is coming to the fore a bit because Jamie is filling in some of these gaps that Tywin just kind of casually mentions. And it's an eerie parallel to Tyrion himself who definitely needs love and has had it denied to him in a variety of ways throughout his life. <laughs> it's kind of like Daenerys. There's three major blows in Tyrion's life in terms of his ability to feel and process and be and love, really. The death of his mother, the Taisha tragedy, and the fallout with Jamie. So the first is because, while we don't know Joanna for sure, it's likely she would have loved him as most mothers do. You know, maybe there would have been some problems, but still, at the very least, Cersei and Tywin wouldn't be blaming him for her death. So that's one major thing that would have been taken off of him as a burden, and one unfair burden lifted from him. And, of course, the possibility that his mother would have loved him. And then then those two, of course, Cersei and Tywin are overshadowing all of this. They aren't watershed milestone moments in his life. They're constants. So the second one is Taisha, who loved him for who he was. Again, that's kind of where I'm going with this because a a mother's love obviously isn't the same as a lover, but loving him for for who he is. He gets very little of that. Despite the lies told to him on that front, Taisha really did love him. He doesn't know that. He may figure that out eventually. But of course... He hasn't had his fallout with Jamie that yet. And that's coming. And that's the third one because Jamie is the other one who loves him for who he is. Motherly love, brotherly love, and a lover. And this all, these have all been denied to him through deception or through tragedy or through various plot arcs. The, the few opportunities he did have were snuffed out. Let's put it that way. And now he's also being snubbed in his achievements. And both of these things are clearly related to how the world views him for what he is. The things he's done, for example, the the courage he displayed, the leadership he displayed, he's very keenly aware that if Jamie did those things, they'd be viewed differently. It's a constant refrain in his life, a painful reality that there's nothing he can do to be seen the way those full men are seen as as he thinks about it. So this pain, these similarities in upbringing is clearly something George can and probably will include as uh, part of Tyrion and Daenerys' bonding. I mean, they, they both had their mother die in childbirth and they're both denied love in various ways. Uh, Daenerys is probably going to be denied love by Westeros, perhaps on both a personal and private level. And Tyrion's going to have extreme firsthand experience with that. And thus, she very well may listen to him and be 
influenced by whatever it is he ends up doing or pushing her towards. So I do expect, as it was on TV, that many in Westeros will reject the notion of Queen Daenerys and her, all her, and her foreign army and all that. But I do not expect, as it was on TV, that Tyrion will be the voice of reason trying to pull her back from reaching or from reacting to that, to all that with brutality. More likely, he'll be pushing her, maybe encouraging it, at least for a time. Couple of thoughts from Joe. It occurs to me uh, this time around that Tyrion won Storm of Swords is very similar to Cersei won Feast for Crows and that they're both uh, incredibly paranoid about the other coming from the shadows to kill them. Uh, as a very small detail, Sir Adam Marbrand mentions that there's 4,400 gold cloaks. It's worth remembering because we're going to be seeing more battling at King's Landing probably when the Golden Company maybe shows up at the door of King's Landing and it might behoove us to have some idea of the manpower there. Some more of Tywin's hypocrisy when Ty, uh, Tywin points out Jamie would never be so foolish as to remove, remove his helm in battle. I trust you killed the man who cut you? Yeah, so Jamie's only captured in battle in a very foolish manner and then gets his hand cut off. No. <laughs> so Tywin's refusal to note Tyrion's sacrifice knows or his obvious withholding of credit for bravery is, is, is a big part of, again, what fueling Tyrion's anger. But it's also just amazing to see Tywin's assumptions here. He's just assuming so many great things about Jamie, whereas with proof that Tyrion did, did great things, he still finds a way to shut it down or to look at it in a less lesser light. And of course, Tyrion did, well, Podrick did kill the man that cut Tyrion. And, well, Jamie has not killed the man who cut his hand off. In fact, that man is still alive, as I detailed in the Arya's Where Are They Now episode centered around Hall, which is available for patrons. It's only about a 15-minute episode, but keeps you up to date on all the brave companions and a lot, of, a lot of Gregor's men and things like that. Okay, from Will Moss, I don't think that is what Tyrion, or what Tywin means by low cunning, in terms of the low cunning of, of I, we refer to the Reigns of Castamir. He thinks it's just cunning coming from someone Tywin considers lowly. Hmm. In other words, it's only cunning because he, it's only low cunning because he, uh, because of his opinion of, of Tywin, any, or of Tyrion. In other words, Will's saying that anything Tyrion does is pretty much low cunning if it's clever. <laughs> Tywin, if he does it, it's strategy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that very much fits with the brand of, Tyrion, uh, Tywin's hypocrisy. I real have real, real trouble saying Tyrion when I meant to say Tywin. And that's uh, partly that's, um, mm, there's some meta in there. Yeah. Mm, you have so much in common. River Missoula having a certain low cunning is a reference is a reference to being clever, but in a devious way, an underhanded way. So it looks like people were having a discussion about the meaning of low cunning. Not just the meaning of low cunning, but Tywin's meaning when he says it. So River Missoula continues and says, nobility often believed that the un uneducated peasants were often clever, but dishonest at heart. Hmm. Nina points out that Tyrion thinks of Cersei as having low cunning also. So there's, there's different interpretations here. Patrick McCann says, uh, leaves a super chat and says, sorry, off topic. We just wanted to say, looking forward to Ice and Fire Con. First timer. Okay, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Ice also, and Fire Con, April, last weekend in April. Yeah, April 24th. I also wanted to point out to, uh, well, not point out, but bring up to you, Aziz, Patrick said he's going to do Patch Face. 
Whoa. Yes. Also, we all decided that a group of patch faces is either a patch of patch faces or a quilt of patch faces. <laughs> it's also freaking terrifying. <laughs> a terror of patch faces. Yeah, a terror of patch faces. But no, I'm very excited uh, cool. to see all of our listeners. Every one of you is going to be yeah, there, all right? all of you must show up. Ice and Firecon's attendance will go from about 250 to several thousand. But yeah, um, it's in Ohio and you can you can get a discount off your ticket if you use the code history. And yeah, we do hope to see you there. It's super fun. Scott Wartman says, I've never addressed this, but I wonder if Braun would use the Stokeworth sigil for more credibility or stick to his. Oh, good point. Yeah, because Braun does become Lord Stokeworth by the end of, effectively Lord Stokeworth by the end of the where we're at in the books. Scott um, also brought up later the idea that what if he combined the two? Oh, he could corner make, it yeah. and stuff like that. I actually can't think of what the Stokeworth's arms are right now, so I don't even know what that something would look like. Something with a like. lamb. Is it a lamb? Yeah, a burning some... green lamb walking on a chain? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Tightrope lamb. Yeah, I guess it depends <laughs> on if you combine it or just keep them separate, like half and half or something. That's a good question for later, Scott. We'll have to check on that one. Paul Berry from Patreon says... The collection of chapters, this collection of chapters provides a fascinating comparison in ruling and decision-making styles. We see Tyrion still utterly perplexed why he wasn't loved by the commons, even though Tywin and the Tyrells are doing exactly what he should have done, feeding the people. Yeah, we talked about that at the time, that Tyrion just seems to throw his hands up like, gosh, I just, I can't make the people love me, so I'm not even going to try. We see Sansa witnessing the same dichotomy, and I just have a feeling she's learning from it. We see Tywin at his utterly ruthless best, but you have to give him credit. He's a case study in governing effectively. We not like him, but he gets stuff done. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you can say about the ethics of how he gets things done, but it's true that he doesn't leave things undone. <laughs> Whether he does them morally is a separate conversation, but he doesn't leave them undone. Yeah, there is some merit to that. There's also a lot of problems with that, but let's not get too deep in that. Paul Barry continues. Finally, we see Danny sifting deftly through Jorah's laughably terrible advice and being shrewd enough to recognize when what he says is wise. I have a feeling if Tyrion ever ends up as her advisor, she's going to be bitterly disappointed with what she gets. That last take is really interesting because that's something a lot of us are really wondering about. I think before the TV show, uh, and even and which, which is ironic because the TV show isn't really what revealed all of Tyrion's coming darkness. It's really just all, all the, the fandom collectively coming around and thinking more about it and realizing where some of these holes are and realizing where Tyrion's story is really headed. And so I could, I could definitely see that happening. Tyrion being, I theorize that maybe Danny will be the one that's harder to pull back because she's performing miracles and is younger and she has less sense of the world because she's lived in it less time. But maybe that's backwards. Maybe she'll be the one to come back and, and show mercy and decide she's doing things wrong, and Tyrion will continue to push her to darkness. Well, again, we'll have to wait and see. Nice take by Sir James, Knight of the Broken Heart here, on the take of uh, knighthood. He thinks that it's a denial uh, of just a general strategy that Tywin is employing to deny Tywin, uh, or to deny Tyrion. He did it again, called Tywin Tyrion. <laughs> it's part of keeping him from claiming Cashley Rock, basically. It boils down to that. If Tyrion is seen as a hero, and... Tywin could push the idea that Tyrion was worthy because it's Tywin after all. Tywin, if Tywin stands up and says Tyrion was brave at the battle, he did this, he deserves rewards, people are going to follow along with that because people just, when Tywin says jump, people say how high. But if Tywin is worried about Tyrion eventually claiming Casterly Rock, even after his death, he doesn't want to give him any ammunition for that. He wants to keep 
Tyrion's accolades to the minimum. So he isn't seen as a hero. So he isn't given ammunition for pushing his claim later. Web Drum from our Facebook group loves the implied bromance here. Uh, bronze sigil based on Tyrion's planning before the battle. <laughs> That's cool. I like that too. There are at least two H.P. Lovecraft references in this one. If it were just one, I might call it a coincidence. But two, and they're right next to each other? Mm, yeah. It comes when talking of Tyrion's would-be murderer, Sir Mandon. Here's a quote. He had eyes like a fish and he wore a white cloak. What else do you need to know? Everything, said Tyrion, for a start. What he wanted was proof that Sir Mandon had been Cersei's, but he dare not say so aloud. In the Red Keep, a man who did best to hold his tongue, there were rats in the walls and little birds who talked too much, and spiders. The first of the two H.P. Lovecraft references is the combination of Bronn saying he had eyes like a fish with the combination of drowning. Fish-human hybrids are a recurring theme in Lovecraft, what with the Deep Ones and Cthulhu's temple complex lying far beneath the waves and all that. That's part of why, why people associate the Ironborn and the Drowned God with the same stuff. So perhaps Mandon Moore was just going home. Yeah, yeah. The second reference is the phrase rats in the walls. Lovecraft has a story called The Rats in the Walls and it's considered one of his best. It's one of his most famous. It may have been inspired by a line in Poe's Fall of the House of Usher. Now, George R. R. Martin is a huge fan of both Poe and Lovecraft. So the chance that he wasn't aware of himself writing the phrase rats in the walls with meaning is very, very unlikely. A couple of people pointed out the phrase Tyrion says that maybe they've mistaken me for a mushroom because he's down in the dark and being fed, you know, shit. <laughs> now that's perhaps a nod to the future Tyrion parallel, rather past Tyrion parallel, depending on if you want to look at publishing order or in-world chronology, the, the dwarf jester mushroom, who is a big source of information for the Dance of the Dragons and has some things in common with Tyrion, apart from being a dwarf. Stefan B. looks at the line, the dwarf has risen from the dead and wonders if that's foreshadowing or meant to be more metaphorical. Yeah, I mean, if Tyrion is killed and becomes undead. Hey, we got that line in the TV show that some people thought was foreshadowing. It didn't turn out to be that. I've certainly entertained that idea. But, you know, I kind of don't think Tyrion's going to be undead. I do kind of think he's going to be alive at the end, maybe doing great council type stuff. I don't know, but it could be wrong. Stephanie the Peerless puts out another example of hypocrisy from our Flick channel. Whipping Aliyaya despite being a patron of that same brothel. Archmaster Rennie points out that Tywin is annoyed that Tyrion doesn't use commoners secretly and disregard them later because that's what he does and that's what he thinks that they're there for, like a horse. Tyrion has a broader view of humanity, though, because he himself is marginalized. Now, clearly his extreme privilege as a Lannister clouds some of that issue, but he is a lot closer to understanding what it's like to be a commoner than his father is, who is one of the farthest from understanding those things. Also on our Flick channel, there was a lot of discussion of Penny and how some of this extends to her, but we got to stop somewhere. Well, we, there'll be plenty of opportunities to talk about Penny later, so we will uh, save that. We'll save that penny. A penny saved is a penny earned. Hey, nice. Onward, Davos won. National Lampoon's Blackwater Vacation, a.k.a. the one where Davos is stranded. George R. R. Martin does some serious inversion of the stranded on a deserted island trope here. Usually there is something on the island for the character to interact with, a mystery or a danger. And that's paired with the character's struggle with basic survival needs. But here, the, the difficulty of survival is enhanced greatly and there's no external conflict and mystery. Instead, there's internal conflict and mystery. Davos doesn't struggle with monsters on his island. He struggles with himself. Well, that's one way to look at it anyway. 
Another way we can put it is that to say on the heels of Tyrion's suffering and recovery, we have another important character who's in the same battle, one who felt the full force of Tyrion's battle strategy on the Blackwater, and we're seeing his suffering. I don't know about the full force. Yeah, not the full force. (laughs) He didn't burn, but (laughs) almost, almost the full force. He saw the full force. He watched the sail grow for a long time, trying to decide whether he would sooner live or die. Now, that is one of the most efficient first sentences in all the books because it exactly describes the entire chapter. He sees that sail, then we're sent back in his memory to the days leading up to this moment when his rescue hangs in the balance, but in part because he has to decide whether he actually wants to be rescued. Really, really succinct. And so he thinks of his ordeal with exposure and hunger and thirst, and we flash back to the last few days while he's pondering and suffering. I don't know enough about drowning and passing out while in the water to know if we should be suspicious that Davos remembers himself drowning but ends up fairly far from where he was and not drowned. That's outside of my uh, knowledge there. Someone else could fill it in if, they're, uh, if they do have that knowledge. In this and the next chapter, we learn that in, even a ship passing near Davos was extremely unlikely because it's a dangerous area. The, the, Davos thinks about how there's all these little rocks pointing out just below the water and how they could tear out a hull. So to him, it's part of the miracle that he lived that even a ship came near him. Not only was he washed up ashore and that's a miracle, but the ship being able to see him and get him is another miracle. So all these different things that have to break right for Davos to survive do break right. And that just puts him in a mind of, like I said, miracles and and. The idea that he was, he's alive for a purpose. And he's a fairly devout guy. He's a superstitious man. So this, this really fits really well with his character. It's no wonder both readers and Davos himself suspect supernatural, right? Drowning in Storm's End and Dragonstone makes you think of Patchface. And indeed, Davos thinks of Patchface too. Not in this chapter, but his next. So we'll quote that. Davos was reminded of Patchface, Princess Shireen's lackwit fool. He had gone into the sea as well. And when he came out, he was mad. Am I mad as well? Consider too how well this fits with Ironborn beliefs. Surviving a drowning is a sign of the drowned God's favor, surely. And hey, one could see Ironborn admiring Davos' sailing skills, but yeah, obviously Davos doesn't think of the drowned God. Basically, readers are divided on the many possibilities, and so are we. But he's sure, Davos is sure, that the gods saved him so he can kill Melisandre. It's kind of arbitrary, but kind of see where he's, where he's getting it. He's projecting a bit, though, for sure. The idea that the lost battle and his dead sons and all that wildfire is her fault? Davos, buddy, you're my favorite character, but that's crazy. She is not responsible. He blames himself, though, too. And that's not true either. In addition to his grief, blame, anger, physical torment, there's this heavy dose of survivor's guilt, mostly over his sons, but also, quote, How can I live when they are dead? So many brave knights and mighty lords have died, better men than me, and highborn. Crawl inside your cave, Davos. Crawl inside and shrink up small and the ship will go away and no one will ever tr- will trouble you ever again. Sleep on your stone pillow and let the gulls peck out your eyes while the crabs feast on your flesh. You've feasted on enough of them. You owe them. Hide, smuggler. Hide and be quiet and die. Stannis was the leader of this effort. The failure is his. He did not run a perfect campaign, nor was his plan for the Blackwater beyond reproach, as we detailed during those chapters. Stannis took your boys into battle, Davos, not Melisandre, not you. 
He also thinks he hears the mother whispering that he did nothing when Mel burned their statues. He begins to feel that he's let the gods down, and this will help lead to his decision to try to assassinate her to atone. In addition to the rest, the wildfire had nothing to do with her. Tyrion and Cersei and the pyromancers are responsible for that, but he doesn't think of them. Melisandre. He just, it's a very basic connection. Fire, bad. Melisandre, fire, bad. Yeah. I still maintain that the Proudwing story is foreshadowing for Davos, not Stannis. Davos is going to have to find a new king or queen to serve. This stag won't fly. That sounds kind of obvious when I put it that way. Stags don't fly. It's not a winged stag. This isn't some bitter steel stag, winged horse. Nope. Along with that notion of Proudwing and how Davos may have to eventually move on, Davos's finger bones are gone. That which symbolizes Stannis's great justice that Davos puts so much faith in. But Stannis is about to try to burn Edric Storm and only Davos and his smuggling skills and a few other faithful men stop him. So whose ju- great justice are you really thinking of here? I think Davos is the one that did justice there, not Stannis. And Shireen. I believe Stannis will burn Shireen in the books as well. And Davos will not be there to stop him or won't be able to. And that will be... I believe, if anything, the turning point. that If he hasn't already turned away from Stannis, that will do it. And of course, that may also be when Stannis dies. So he'll have to turn. That, But that might be the reason, or rather the moment, he realizes that the king he's chosen never would have flown in the first place. He may have realized that he's wasted his time or that he's made a mistake. It may all come back to him and he may have regretful moments, not unlike these ones he's having now while sitting on these rocks. Now, Stannis has many great features, right? I'm not saying Stannis is bad, but his flaws are pretty fatal. And Davos is blind to that for now. This is why he blames himself. He can't bring himself to blame Stannis. So he blames Melisandre and the gods. Anyone but the man who actually ordered this battle to happen. The men who they're all fighting to put on the throne. That's the source of this. You could argue that the Lannister stealing his throne is, is part of it too, but still, that's, that's getting pretty far afield. We're getting pretty indirect at that point. More importantly, Mel is not to blame. That's what we're really trying to get at. And that's so interesting how Davos is the guy that said no to Crescent. He's like, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do this. And now he's basically becoming Crescent. You know, I, I will say that I think it's interesting in the chat, Justin DL97 said, Davos thinks of Melisandre because he associates her with the flames. Yeah, he does. It's, I it's, think is, you know, and it, part of it, why he thinks of her right there. Yeah, it's true. And she, and she's going to later claim the battle would have gone differently if she had been there. And you just wonder what she means by that. During the battle north of the wall, when Stannis's army surprises Mansa's, Mel burns Orel the eagle right out of the sky. So... She definitely provided some evidence that she might have been able to do some things. On one hand, the wall is, as she calls it, a hinge of the world. And that she claims that makes her more powerful. So maybe that's why she was able to blast Orel out of the sky like that. On the other hand, wind and flame are things we've seen her and others of her kind, like Makoro, manage. So it definitely seems like an open question that that's, leans towards... She might be telling the truth. I think she's probably exaggerating. I think she's probably saying, look, it was a huge mistake for Stannis to leave me home. And she just really doesn't want to make that mistake again and just wants to emphasize her own power. I'm not so convinced that she would have made the difference, but I can't dismiss it either. 
And in general, I'm curious, what else can she do in battle besides blowing up skin changers? I, I wonder if she can control wildfire like she seems to claim she can. And if so, will that come up again? Will it come up in the North later? I mean, we see her do some magic in season eight of the show, and you wonder if that's vaguely the kind of thing she'll do in the books. Probably, but again, vaguely similar, not too similar. We'll see. So he again thinks of wildfire as a jade demon and thinks of how it was 50 feet high and all that. He thinks of each of his sons in turn, avoiding the thought of Devin, who was with Stannis. And so there's some chance Devin survived. He did survive, as, as, as we know. He's alive still now at the start of the Winds of Winter at the Wall, uh, serving Melisandre directly. And so that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Davos is sitting here blaming Mel for his four dead sons, but we see in Mel's head in A Dance of Dragons that she's legitimately concerned with keeping Devin alive for Davos's sake and that she you know, is kind of fond of Devin and is kind of amused by the fact that he's got a crush on her. <laughs> He doesn't, she does not seem to have any ulterior motive. She, she doesn't think of like, I might have to burn this kid one day. <laughs> it's just nothing like that at all. It's, it's very, it's surpri- shockingly sensitive and empathetic. And it, a lot of people were, t- were caught off guard by Melisandre's chapter, self-included. But we have the opportunity to think about it right here. I, and I also have to say that even after Melisandre's chapter, I was, I've mentioned it before, I just wasn't sold on her for whatever reason. The show really drove it home for me. And so looking back at her actions, I feel she has so much more of a genuine nature to what she's doing. I agree. She's way more interesting than she seems. She's a great example of George inverting a trope of like a zealot who you think is going to have be fairly simple-minded with their approach because they're so hyper-focused on their eventual goal. And she's pretty damn focused, but she's full of nuance. She's not a zealot. I mean, she's zealotous, but she's not, you know, she's, there's a lot more nuance to her and it's very interesting. Yeah. The captain who rescues him is named Corrine Sathmantis. That's a cool name. This captain is not seen again. He may still be with Salador or he could be among the ones that were wrecked in the same storms that caused Salador to finally leave Stannis' service, which is when he was taking Davos to White Harbor and ends up leaving him on uh, the sisters. Overall, it's a chapter with a fair bit of recap. It's not very long, 21 minutes on audiobook, where the average length in The Storm of Swords for a chapter is 35 minutes. So it's exa- like pretty much exactly 60% the average length. It has a great ending, though. After all his suffering, he decides he wants to live and yells for help. They come for him, and he's asked a poignant question. They want to know his name. It's a simple question on the surface, but it's a really amazing summary of what he's been spending this entire time pondering. Quote, You up on the rock, who are you? It's a major point, right? He, for Jamie, for Tyrion, for a lot of other characters, it's going to come up. A Tyrion's just now thinking about who he is and, and how his identity has changed. John is now a wildling, sort of. He's got to be thinking about that. We haven't even had a John chapter yet. And Danny, Danny's rethinking who she is in a lot of ways and her strategy. It's an early theme of this book, reconsidering one's identity. And with that comes reconsidering who your friends and allies and enemies are. This is Tywin and Tyrion, neither wanting to admit how much they are like each other. This is Sansa no longer betrothed to the king. This is John as a wildling. This is Danny taking Jorah's advice to stop being so deferential to Illyrio and push the boundaries a little bit. In other words, that's the point I made about reconsidering alliances. This is, so this is Davos deciding to kill Melisandre consciously, but subconsciously and symbolically, the loss of the finger bones is a sign that he's lost that connection to Stannis and he is someone else now. Joe Buckley points, has a great take here. 
We've spoken before about Davos being our everyman POV, the lone climber from the bottom of the social structure to somewhere near the very top. Storm of Swords seems to double down on that. Not content with stripping away social st- status, Davos' storyline begins with him being stripped of any mark of society at all. There is no food, water, comfort, or shelter. There's only a man versus the elements. All this just goes to stretch Davos' arc all the further within this one book. To go from this to Hand of the King. More so, this is the farthest we've seen any lord actually fall to this point. Yes, Tyrion has been in the Sky Cells. Arya has had the worst of it at Harrenhal. But there was some human structure and element there and possibly some chance of escape. For Davos, there is nothing but a long wait for death alone. Not often we see lords bowing so low they have to suck the guts from crabs after all. Yeah. Mm. Davos gets a reminder of this kind of hardship to bring him even closer to Stannis, perhaps. He maybe even understands the, the sufferings of, of the Storm's End Siege before. And that may come up later because I do think Stannis will be besieged at Winterfell and Davos's thoughts on all that will matter and his reaction to it is going to matter quite a bit too. Joe also says, I find it incredibly interesting that Davos specifically faces this kind of end on a barren rock in the sea, given that he is obviously so tied to the sea and has spent his life upon it. Indeed, he begins thinking of the dangerous elements around him as his friends and even wonders if he should walk into the loving embrace of the sea. So while it is Davos versus the elements, it seems like more like a friendly chess game between him and the Grim Reaper rather than some raging battle within. Needless to say, if we had some landlubber like John stranded on a rock, we wouldn't get so near the thematic resonance we do here. Great takes from Joe there. And as I said, he's got a lot more written here. And you all should check out the Isle of Faces to get some of these other great takes. All right, some thoughts from y'all. Uh, Scott Wartman, I like how Davos recalls seeing Black Betha burn while it hasn't been confirmed she was at Summerhall. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We have not, we don't know for sure she was at Summerhall. She may have died before that. She almost certainly didn't die after that, but she either died there or before. Still an open question. Jeremy Gabriel says, this passage strikes me as one of the few times we see superstition overtly from a character. Good take. Actually, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I know we get references elsewhere with respect to Joffrey and what a man sows on his name day, so shall he reap all year, but this is different. It's odd to me that Davos finds luck in the pouch of finger bones. He says it's a reminder of Stannis' justice, but it's, as, but it's as if Stannis' protection has been stripped away or whatever specifically it is that he associates with luck and the bones themselves. But you get the feeling that he truly believed in the luck, which I find curious. It sort of reminds me too of like an, a soldier who might keep a slug from a bullet that nearly killed them for luck. An odd association, but one that indeed does happen. That's a good point, for sure. Yeah, uh, another character who I think of is very superstitious is Victorian. Uh, Victorian is extremely superstitious, pr- more so than Davos, and it's interesting that he too is a sailor. Sailors, it's something that is talked about a lot, that sailors have a lot of superstitions. As a non-sailor, I think maybe that's exaggerated, but maybe not. Maybe it's just, maybe sailors have lots of superstitions, more so than non-sailors, I don't know. I wonder about that. It's, it's neat too, because you'd think that superstitions in a, in a society like this might be more common, but less so because so many of our POVs are, are, um, are nobles who are highly educated and less likely to be involved, uh, to engage in superstition. Lots of people recall expressing extreme happiness and relief learning that Davos was alive. It's just so long ago, but I, it was for me too. I remember opening A Storm of Swords and thinking, oh yeah, cool, Davos is alive. I mean, at the time in the Clash of Kings, it really seemed like he was dead, right? There, I didn't perceive that he had particularly powerful plot armor at the time. Now, it seems like he's got things to do. It seems like Davos's arc is more important than Stannis's. You know, a lot of us think that. I'm certainly one of them. 
And Especially now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The show we thought did, so before. The but show that, made that even more clear. Yeah, that hammered that home. And Davos is also probably a more popular character than Stannis, which is saying something because Stannis is very popular. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. I like Stannis. So, but at the time, why would anyone be like, oh no, there's no way Davos died? Like, why not? Why couldn't Davos die? Tree Girl with a really great take here. Poor Davos with his tide pools and his crabs and his grief. This chapter is such a beautiful sketch of his near-death experience and the turn away from it. See, that's a, that's a, a two-sentence analysis worthy of George's initial one-sentence encapsulation of the chapter. In support of the idea of the drowned god, the deep ones and all that jazz, Stefan B. reminds us of the quote from Davos, the gods beneath the waters, which is maybe more superstition from him. But one thing is definitely not is a re- reference to the seven whom he worships because there's no, the, the seven don't really associate with the water or any of that. So maybe that's just part of Davos filling out his own personal pantheon because he worships the seven, but since none of them apply to the waves of the waters, the oceans, he's got to, He's got to fill something in there. Great take from another Facebooker um, in our group, Christina Costa. Uh, more on the bones. The finger bones were a huge topic of conversation between all of our social media outlets where we discussed the chapters. She says, I also think that the bones represent to him a reminder that there are no free lunches. The cost of rising socially was very high. Mutilation was a price he accepted for his children's better future. As every other man who doesn't get how mutilated or mutilating yourself on behalf of their children, well, he calls Stannis' justice, he calls that Stannis' justice because, again, very few people get the opportunity he did. But Christina thinks maybe this is a bit of an excuse from Davos. He's something that Davos is accepting because of the benefit he received. He, he has to accept it as okay, otherwise he has to reject it. And that is part of why Davos just won't blame Stannis for anything, why he's projecting, why he's blaming Melisandre, Christina says, it's not okay what Stannis did. Not, it was not okay to cut, to cut Davos' fingers off. And this is part of why Davos is able to take some heart in the fact that Stannis did it himself. And it was, he thought that was ju- more, made it more just, that made it more personal, that made it more honorable. On the other hand, little Edric Storm, a, a young Marathian himself, is going to agree with Christina at the beginning of Davos' next chapter. He's going to be like, he shouldn't have done that. He should not have cut your fingers off. And you love hearing the opinions straight from the mouths of babes. The wisdom from the mouth of babes thing is something George likes to play with every once in a while, like a lot of authors do. And I feel like that is pretty accurate. I think that a lot of us disagree with Stannis' justice here, even though um, you might agree with a lot of other things Stannis does. Okay, that covers Davos 1 for us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Sansa won! The gang wants Sansa for Willis, aka the Queen of Thorns gets her cheese. The first line is... The invitation seemed innocent enough, but every time Sansa read it, her tummy tightened into a knot. Indeed, it's not so innocent, but that's not what scares Sansa. She's scared it's a trick. And it kind of is, but it's not the kind of trick she's worried about. It's not, a, it's not a Joffrey loyalty test trick or a Cersei loyalty test trick. Let's remind ourselves that Sansa is still only 12 here. 12. 
And I'm not estimating. She tells Tyrion in a few chapters when they're forced to marry that she's 12. By the end of the book, she'll be 13. She turns 13 early in the year 300-ish, roughly, something like that. She keeps the hound's cloak and wishes he was there. She continues to think about him, and that's pretty interesting. She fangirls out over Loras, and then it turns sour. And it's not even clear if Sansa knows that gay and bi people even exist. She's been rather sheltered, and it's certainly not something she ever thinks about. I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. It's clear that she's learning, and I doubt the Sansa of A Game of Thrones would have understood what was going on here. And, and this Sansa is missing a few things, but she's come a long way even from there. Sansa really puts her foot in her mouth by mentioning Robar Royce. You know, there's no reason for her to, to know all the nuance here, but oops, Sir Loras gets mad. And of course he killed Sir Robar in rage and grief and feels guilty about it later. He's going to talk to Jamie uh, about this topic later in the book and he's going to feel bad. He's going to start to realize that he unjustly slew Robar Royce. Worse, for Sansa, in attempting to be polite, in a very standard courtly way, she mentions how terrible it must have been for Marjorie to lose her betrothed, Renly, and she presses this sore spot without realizing it. Quote. That was when Lord went that was when Lord Renly was killed, wasn't it? How terrible for your poor sister. For Marjorie, his voice was tight. To be sure. She was at Bitterbridge, though. She did not see. Even so, when she heard. Sir Loras brushed the hilt of his sword lightly with his hand. Its grip was white leather, its pommel a rose in alabaster. Renly is dead. Robar as well. What use to speak of them? She realizes her mistake in mentioning Robar, but doesn't realize the depth of his hurt. She doesn't know that Loras and Renly were deeply in love and has very little way to figure that out. Maybe she could have understood from his reaction that there was something, something missing from the whole thing. But again, she's, she's only 12. For a lot of people, this scene hits way harder the second time through because they missed that Renly and Loras were lovers. So they're, they're also missing the nuance that Sansa's missing. And frankly, so did I. The first time I read it. I learned it later in this book, if I recall correctly, because Jamie has this angry kind of, I'll stick my sword so far up, you know, your butt, you'll, it'll find places Renly never did. That like was like, wait, what? <laughs> so when you read, uh, when you first read Loras right here, do you remember? Did you think he was just being a jerk? Did you think he was upset about, have, you know, their faction having, you know, lost their leader? Do you not remember? I think it was because of the Robar thing. I remember that much. Um, I remember him killing Robar and I thought he just maybe was feeling guilty about doing it because it was made clear okay. that he killed Robar in, in okay. anger, you know? Yeah, that he had mixed feelings about how everything had ended is so, what you were interpreting yeah. his terseness as. So basically, I'm right there with Sansa. I was, I had the, basically the same info she had. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting. It's kind of like Catelyn being misled about Hoster Tully and Lysa and how she thinks she figures it out, but isn't quite there. And the mm. truth is, is far worse. The show, of course, made it impossible to miss their love. And some of you out there saw the show first. So when you then went and read the books, you were ready to take note of all this. So this also, this scene we get where we get filled out another important piece of the battle, which is who was wearing Renly's armor. And it shows us just as uh, how, how it does in other places that George loves to weave all the different aspects and perspectives during the battle across these different POVs. So the, so the aftermath and the related reveals are not all at once. They, they, they come in places that make sense for those particular characters to be discussing. And of course, we get some interesting information on Garland. Loris says that we know Loris is a badass, 
But Laura says, actually, Garland is better at sword fighting than me. He says, I'm better at jousting, but he's better at sword fighting. And Garland is kind of one of the series' hidden badasses, kind of waiting for him to do something. Right now, he's been given Brightwater Keep, but he's got to go deal with, but he doesn't have it yet because the Florence still hold it. And he's interrupted in his quest to claim it by the arrival of Euron's Iron Men in the Shield Island. So he's currently working on that problem, dealing with the Shield Islands. And uh, maybe this training against two or three or four swordsmen at once will come in handy when he's fighting the Ironborn. We'll see. The dinner with Olena and Marjorie is attended by quite a few interesting figures. We got Lady Allery, Nay Hightower. We got Lady Merriweather, as in the Cersei's future lover. So she's introduced pretty early here, but there's not much to say about her. It's just that Sansa notices how beautiful she is. Many of the girls will be accused by Cersei later. Many of these girls in this group will be accused in Cersei's, you know, blue bard, Marjorie cheating on Joffrey and Tommen, sort of her false accusations. So a lot of these girls are going to be ensnared in that. And so will some of these knights mentioned. And so will some of Cersei's men mentioned. So a lot of people are going to be ensnared in that. Quickly, Olena reveals herself to be a straight talker. Later, we learn she's not. She is a straight talker in this scene, And that sets us off a little bit on the wrong foot because she's sort of acting here. She pairs this bluntness with extreme cleverness and subtlety. But as Nina points out during our discussions on this chapter, she's being blunt and straightforward because it's a way to encourage Sansa to be blunt and straightforward because they're trying to get information out of her. She masks herself even further by having her loud, arrogant, but not very talented son out in front as the sort of the face of House Tyrell. She treats him without a lot of respect, but absolutely works through and around him. She doesn't undermine him, unlike the Lannisters undermining each other. She just tweaks his plans without him knowing. So they're a lot more united as a family than Lannisters are. And that's something very clever here in general. For one thing, this description of Mace Tyrell and how she runs the family is is presented as a microcosm here with Butterbumps. Butterbumps is this loud dude yelling and drawing all the attention while she sits down and does the real business of ruling behind the scenes. And so this loud guy is distracting and covering up the sounds of her plotting. So it's, that's, that's a microcosm of what Mace Tyrell is doing for the family. He's out there being loud and blustery and taking all the attention. Meanwhile, Olen is handling business. So that's pretty cool. I, that's something I never really thought out before either. Olena is picking her uh, fool... Probably how, like a lot of people, choose speakers. They just, you know, maintain that loud volume without uh, losing it. Just keep, she just needs someone with a loud voice and the stamina to keep being loud. That's why we have you. (laughs) Zing. Sometimes you do actually mumble off. So I probably wouldn't have hired you. (laughs) That's true. So she almost immediately outs Renly. Not that kind of outing, excuse me. Though I imagine she knew about that too. Why? Well, Not only is she generally quite well-informed, but one of the points of this scene is that she's vetting Joffrey's personality on behalf of Marjorie, so it's pretty likely she did the same with Renly, meaning vetting who he was. And Renly was already more of a known commodity to their family. After all, Loras was his squire. She didn't think a whole lot of Renly, though, it seems. Quote, Her grandmother snorted. Gallant, yes, and charming, and very clean. He knew how to dress, and he knew how to smile, and he knew how to bathe. And somehow he got the notion that this made him fit to be a king. 
The Baratheons have always had some queer notions, to be sure. <laughs> it comes from their Targaryen blood, I should think. She sniffed. They tried to marry me to a Targaryen once, but I soon put an end to that. I don't think the queer notion is a reference to his sexuality because I don't think queer was a was a commonly used term for homosexuality. I think it's a meta commentary. I think it's George saying okay. this. I don't think it's open. I don't think it speaks to whether Olena knows that or not. I think yeah. it speaks to George saying, "Yeah, they're gay." Okay, but I do think he. But I do think she probably knew, and I'll get into why. Of course, we need to mention who that Targaryen was. And these two things are related, as in the Targaryen that they tried to marry her to. Ironically, it puts us right back in mind of Renly and Loras because that very same intended prince that she was set to marry was a one of many Prince Darons in the history of Prince Darons and the House Targaryen. But this particular Prince Daron was quite gay. In fact, she appears to have had nothing to do with ending the wedding. Uh, he refused to marry her because of his orientation. Now, that's a little odd, right? Because usually the king and queen force the issue. If I'm gay, got people out of arranged marriages, there would be a lot more examples of nobles and royals pretending to be gay. So how did he get away with ditching his marriage on that basis? Well, we in fact just covered this from another angle in the Catelyn chapter last week. So again, a parallel between the Catelyn chapter and this one. I mentioned that Hoster Tully turned on House Targaryen after the Tullys had a several century long unbroken streak of loyalty and how this may have been in part, this break may have been in part fueled by the fact that Celia Tully was set to be queen of Westeros by virtue of being betrothed to Prince Jaehaerys, later King Jaehaerys II. First, firstborn Prince Duncan abdicated his inheritance in order to marry Jenny of Oldstones. It's funny how Jenny of Oldstones was mentioned twice already in this episode. That's why Jaehaerys became king and why Celia lost out on becoming queen. So famously, Prince Duncan was joined by several more of his siblings in marrying for love, which led to the breaking of their betrothals as well. So Jaehaerys, instead of marrying Celia Tully, married his sister Shara instead. Yeah, that's right. They wanted to go the incest route. And Shara was set to marry none other than Luthor Tyrell, he who rode off a cliff while hawking. So what we have is amidst Duncan and Shara and Jaehaerys all breaking their betrothals, Prince Daron broke his to Olenna. The fallout is still felt now. We showed you all how the Tullys might have kept that long-held alliance and broke it because of this, or partly because of this. The Tyrells did stay loyal despite this breaking of betrothals, but they were famously lukewarm of their support of Ares. And the uh, Redwines, Olenna's family, were right there with them. Both Tyrell and Tully had been appointed by Aegon the Conqueror to rule their respective donaim, domains. Neither held them prior. Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. Um, when you brought up uh, Prince da Prince Duncan and you said that's why Jaehaerys became king and why Celia lost out on being queen, yeah. right? Was she betrothed to Jaehaerys while he was the crown prince? I'm not beforehand? sure. It's not because clear. She might not have been ever intended to be queen. Well, whether it was, whether the, the, the it's, it's probably not, she didn't marry, the betrothal didn't set her to be queen, but Duncan's abdication would have led to that. Yeah, yeah, Duncan's that's abdication what I was just curious before. if they had betrothed a Tully thinking that she was going to be queen. Right, yeah, I don't think so. Okay, they, yeah, they would have, that would have been circumstance, yeah. uh, which they st still, they would have been upset that they lost out on it, but you're right, it would have been a bigger deal if they were, if they were initially promised that, promised that yes. and lost that, yeah. Good, it's a good point, that's a very good clarification. So regardless, though, I do believe that the Tyrells would have been more aggressive in their support uh, during Robert's Rebellion. 
if Luther Tyrell and Shara Targaryen had sired a generation of Tyrell Targaryen heirs instead of what we got, which was Mace Tyrell. They didn't do much fighting in Robert's Rebellion. All they did was besiege Storm's End, right? The, the two halves of this, of this marriage did this, like, right? The Tyrells besieged Storm's End and the Red Wine fleet besieged the sea around Storm's End. So if, yeah, if Olena had married Prince Daron, the Red Wine fleet might have done more than blockade Storm's End and they didn't even blockade it that well. Maybe, maybe I'm not giving enough credit to Davos, but Davos got through, right? So they didn't even, they weren't even, they didn't even do their job properly. So what happened after all this, instead of that outcome, what we got was Luthor and uh, Olena doing that thing you see in movies and TV shows where two different people are stood up by their dates at the same time. And they're like, well, why don't we go out with each other? <laughs> of course, really, this was arranged by their families, most likely. But it's funnier my way. Thank you. Thank you. This is a major missing link that fuels Lady Oena's ambition. Most people just aren't aware of all this. She was almost in the royal family, and now she's got that chance again. Perhaps this is part of why she's so keen on learning about the personalities involved, as she knows how not all pieces in the Game of Thrones make the moves they're supposed to, right? You tell a piece where to move, and it doesn't always go that way. So, and that's what happened before. That's exactly what happened with... King Aegon, the unlikely's sons and daughter. Well, the other T had other daughters too, but they did marry who they were told to marry. She knows, like Littlefinger, Varys, and so many other experts at the game, you really he need to know who you're dealing with. The personalities involved are crucial. So she prefers to marry Marjorie to Tommen and not Joffrey. Of course, it's important to note that while Elena says she wants to know about Joffrey's personality, she likely already knows. After all, Santa already has the hair nut. So the plan to poison Joffrey was decided upon before all these questions are asked about him. So a couple of possibilities here. It's possible she wondered if Littlefinger was lying about Joff's personality and they wanted verification from Sansa. It's possible Olena was willing to call the assassination off if certain things weren't what they were told. It was likely her decision ultimately, though. I imagine that Mace didn't even know about it. Certainly the TV show portrays it that way. Marjorie didn't even know about it on the show, but that I'm less sure about for the book. But we'll get into more of that detail when we actually get to the Purple Wedding. For now, I think it's even more likely that what they're trying to do is use this example as to get a measure of Sansa. They know the truth about Joffrey. They want to know if she'll tell it. In that, it's very similar to what we're about to get in the John chapter where Mance tests John about whether he's going to tell the truth on something he already knows the truth of. Elena also seems to be aware of the incest, or suspicious of it, perhaps. And she's not terribly impressed by Varys. The wrinkled old lady smiled. At Highgarden, we have many spiders amongst the flowers. So long as they keep to themselves, we let them spin their little webs. But if they get underfoot, we step on them. She patted Sansa on the back of the hand. Now, child, the truth. What sort of man is this Joffrey who calls himself Baratheon, but looks so very Lannister. <laughs> so Varys apparently met with the Tyrells ahead of time and had told them that Sansa likes lemon cakes. This is a forgettable off-page interaction that nevertheless hints at larger possibilities because they probably talked about other things too. We just only hear about this lemon cake conversation as a way to let us know that this conversation happened at all. It's a bit of a shame too because there's a lack of Queen of Thorns plus Varus scenes. Like there's, there's just a, a, a dearth of good Varus Queen of Thorns dialogues. <laughs> so, oh well. Either way, I wonder what else they talked about. 
Likewise, Varus does not like the Tyrells. He is impressed by them, probably. In fact, that's the problem. Consider what his aim is here. To foist his perfect prince on the realm. He wants instability. He wants poor rulers. He wants chaos. The Tyrells are a fairly tight and large and unified group. Consider how many different Tyrells start to get nominated for different offices. That's a big family that is largely on the same page, unlike the Lannisters who are plagued with infighting and dislike and distrust of each other. That's very interesting. That Varys does, just like Varys did not want a Stannis regime, he really doesn't want a Tyrell regime either. So keep that in mind. Now, Olenna knows that getting loud, or having Butterbumps get loud, rather, is going to keep Varys or his birds or anyone else from hearing what they have to say. We covered that, but we need to address this in a different way. Because a clever man like Varys is going to recognize what's happening. He's going to recognize that you don't mask things that you're not trying to hide. The presence of a mask implies there's a secret. And in this case, the mask is this loud volume. The secret is not hard to gauge specifically, right? In this case, Varys doesn't know what they're talking about, but she knows why all the great houses are interested in Sansa Stark. They know, he knows it's very straightforward. Everyone's sniffing around Sansa for marriage opportunities and for Winterfell opportunities. So he knows without hearing what they're talking about, they're disguising some sort of marriage plot, <laughs> some sort of way to sneak her away. So that's interesting in that even though he doesn't know what they're saying, he can easily figure out the context. And this is also where Olena comes up a bit short, perhaps, no pun intended, in overlooking and underestimating the very devious man she just did business with the Bitterish. Now, I'm not talking about Varus this time, I'm talking about Littlefinger. Sansa, unfortunately, as a 12-year-old, hasn't quite figured out how important certain secrets are. And this is sadly reminiscent of her telling Cersei about Lord Eddard's plans to leave King's Landing. In both cases, it's a secret she should have kept, and it really bites her in the butt because it keeps her from escaping King's Landing in both cases. And of course, that leads to Tywin arranging for Cersei to marry Willis instead. So it's all, this, the fallout from this is pretty substantial in terms of who marries who, or at least who's forced to marry who, who's betrothed to who. Not all of these marriages actually end up happening, as we know. Here's another interesting quote. Think of Rhaegar fought valiantly. Rhaegar fought for that quote, and then think of this line. My father always told the truth. Sansa spoke quietly. But even so, it was hard to get the words out. Lord Eddard, yes, he had that reputation, but they named him traitor and took, took his head off even so. Yep. Basically the same kind of attitude, the same kind of sentiment there, which is that nobility and honor don't get the rewards. Not these kind of rewards, not these political rewards anyway. A little bit more about the, uh, Hi uh, the Tyrell family. I plan on spending a little more time on this, but because of how much we have to cover, we'll, we'll not do that today. But that's not a big deal because we'll be able to cover them later. These, none of these Tyrells are, are in this scene only. Of course, Mace is married to Allery Hightower. It's very interesting that she's married, that there's a Hightower marriage here. The Hightowers are obviously super powerful. Uh, Mina, of course, is um, married to Paxter Redwine, Mina Tyrell. So that's interesting. So we have another Redwine marriage. Uh, it's a little bit incestuous because Olena is, is a Redwine and this is her daughter. <laughs> or wait, granddaughter? Daughter. I forget. Either way, it's incestuous. But she claimed, and she's the one You'll claiming have the Baratheon. Aziz, once the Reach map is out with the family tree, <laughs> Michael Clarfeld, you'll you'll have this down. <laughs> yeah, I will. That's true. 
Very true. Nothing like a beautiful map with a huge family tree with people I know using as some of the faces to really help these things sink in and become memorable. Anyway, so it's funny that that Olena is talking about queer notions with Baratheons and their Targaryen blood and all this stuff. Meanwhile, her own family's got some incest going on. Interestingly, too, that that Olena blames uh, Oberyn's maester for Willis's leg, in part. Maybe it's it's kind of a sentiment vaguely reminiscent to Barbary Dustin and not trusting the maesters and how they're just like, eh, I don't know about those maesters. Interesting shade she's throwing there. So the Willis plot in general, a couple more things on that. It's it's sort of a good rose, bad rose thing that that that, that Marjorie and Olena are doing, but not but not really bad and good. It's more like blunt rose and gentle rose. So Marjorie is being very sensitive and gentle and being like, oh, you know, Sansa, you'd love to be with us. We're friendly, blah, 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 blah. Meanwhile, Olena's not being mean, but she's blunt, straightforward to the point, the heart of the matter. As it is, which is which fun funny because they don't actually get to the thing that's most important to them, which is Sansa's claim. They beat around that bush, that rose bush. Eh. Interestingly, George doesn't make Willis into a bear character here. We have this bear in the maiden fair song, super important, but it's less important in this scene than it is for other chapters, particularly Danny's, but not just Danny's. Instead, I mean, yeah, what I'm saying is it would have been really easy for George to write Willis as a bear type character, like a guy who's vaguely reminiscent of like a brutal warrior type or someone that she's just totally not interested in. The opposite of what she's dreamed of. Of course, she does end up with the opposite of what she dreamed of with Tyrion for a little while. But I just think it's kind of interesting that George decided to use the bear and the maiden fair imagery for its volume and it's what it says about the plotting here, but uses the, 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 what we learn from the lyrics and the sentiment that it, it suggests in these other chapters. So George instead writes Willis as a worldly crippled guy. He's an interesting, intelligent, smart guy, according to his family. <laughs> but we, get, we actually get evidence that he is that way, uh, from, even from Ober and Martell. We also get a little bit of interesting backstory here. This is something else I would love to go into greater detail on, but it's something that's have to save for another day. Uh, here's a little quote. The Tyrells can trace their descent back to Garth Greenhand. Was the best she could manage at short notice. The Queen of Thorns snorted. So can the Florence, the Rowans, the Oakharts, and half the other noble houses of the South. Garth liked to plant his seed in fertile ground, they say. I shouldn't wonder that more than his hands were green. <laughs> Olena is so great. <laughs> but what she's saying here too is interesting because it's the point is that there's a lot of people in the reach that feel like they have just as much acclaim to the top spot as anyone else. And that means, that's very important because that means they're looking for opportunities to rise higher, to take, uh, to, to advance that claim. And what says opportunity to advance your claim more than invaders and conquerors and, and the opportunity to either join them and get rewards for them or to stay loyal and fight them and get rewards for beating them. So with the friends in the reach concept, people who may rise for young Griff slash Aegon the sixth, take your pick on his title there. Some of these houses, the Florence, the Rowans, Oakharts, half the other noble houses of the South, so to speak, will be looking for that opportunity to advance given the possible change in regime. I really wonder about Olena's guards, Eric and Eric. 
they have their historical counterpart in the Dance of Dragons. They're named after Eric and Arik Cargill, and they famously kill each other in uh, during the Dance of the Dragons on Dragonstone. Now, I kind of doubt these two are going to kill each other, but it's interesting just the fact that George decided to give him uh, to give her these two characters as their bodyguards and give them these exact same names. They're big dudes, seven feet tall. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about the bear and the maiden fair. The lyrics state that the maiden won't ever dance with a hairy bear and it, that she, and it has honey in her hair. I mean, two chapters from now, Jorah Mormont, who is a hairy bear, he is literally hairy and he is a black bear in his sigil and he is brown hair covering himself, is going to try to kiss the, the maiden fair and get rejected like this. And she has honey in her hair, in a sense, with the Targaryen-ness, you know, her, her uh, bloodlines and all that. The, the song refers to three boys, a goat, and a dancing bear. I'm not really sure what that means, but maybe someone can delve deeper into that, those lyrics. It's going to come up several more times in this book. So we'll have other opportunities to analyze what George is saying here. But it's, it's also going to be relevant to Brienne and Jamie in the bear pit. Of course, it harkens to the Beauty and the Beast concept, which we know we've talked about a bunch of times. George R. R. Martin writing for that show. And uh, also black and brown and covered with hair is Yorin, which we mentioned at the time when uh, Amory Lorch was killed by the bear at Harrenhal. Also, Olena just dropping so many historical notes all the way from her business with her marriage, all the way back to the ancient times of Garth Greenhand, more, and, and, to, and now a mention of something from her childhood. She mentions that Arian Brightflame was comely as an example of comeliness being worthless, <laughs> ultimately. She says, I taught my Marjorie what comeliness is worth. And well, Joffrey is the example here. Joffrey is a lot like Arian Brightflame in a lot of ways. And Arian Brightflame died when Olena was about four years old. So that would have been quite the story from when she was growing up. A Targaryen prince who drank wildfire. That would have been uh, something people still gossip about even now, but it would have been relatively fresh when she was young. Some takes from Joe. Some people dislike that Sansa's arc has been fairly stationary since midway through Game of Thrones, at least physically. I disagree and think Sansa's story is fascinating regardless, but Storm of Swords, Sansa has something for everyone. Her marriage story is paradigm-shifting enough, but then to mix that with her inclusion in Joffrey's murder, her long-awaited escape from the horrors of King's Landing, only to end up with Littlefinger, of all people, before, that, before uh, we see the beautiful snow Winterfell scene and cap it all off with one of the most revealing chapters in all of the song, Bison Fire. And this is all set against this backdrop of a book that sees her family murdered or leave Winterfell for good, or leave Westeros for good. Storm Sansa is a whirlwind and no mistake. Great take, Joe. I definitely agree. This is a really good detail catch that I missed. She, uh, Joe points to this quote. The people called out her name as she passed, held up their children for her blessing and scattered flowers under the hooves of her horse. That is Marjorie because the Tyrells are being seen as heroes and welcomed because they're bringing food and victory and, and peace. Sansa herself immediately notes this is the exact same crowd that was calling for King Bread not so long ago. Note that George includes a line about holding up children. That's the part I miss. Remember? the mother last time around who had to hold up her dead child in front of Cersei and how disturbing that was. Vast difference now goes to show how brilliantly the Tyrells are playing the politics here. They're absolutely capturing the love of the commons, a thing that Tyrion didn't even try for, something that Cersei hates having to deal with, or something that Tywin just deals with kind of on a cynical basis, like, well, every once in a while, we got to pay a little attention to that. It's just something on his checklist, but near the bottom. Tyrells, on the other hand, are like, 
they sense a real opportunity here. They understand that the regime, the current regime is not well-liked. And that is an opportunity. One, it's a lot easier to be happy after a victory than it is just before a siege. There's been a massive uh, ease of tension knowing that Stannis has retreated, that they have Tywin in charge instead of Cersei, and also instead of Tyrion. A lot of people just did not like Tyrion being in charge. So a lot of people see this as an improvement. At least Tywin's a known commodity. We know that Tywin's a lot worse than he seems, but if you look at what Tywin seems like from the perspective of the average commoner, he probably seems pretty solid. There generally is food around. That's huge, right? Victory is one thing, but the bottom line, people are eating. That is massive, right? That is so hard to understate, to overstate that. People were literally starving and now they're getting all the food they want. It's a dramatic turnaround, and it's pretty much impossible for them to not give the lion's share of the credit to the Tyrells. <laughs> the lion's share of the credit to the Tyrells. And hence we see Cersei's paranoia at work. So again, Tyrells are masterfully playing this situation. It's, a really, it's great writing by George, setting up the way the Lannisters were, just created this opportunity much farther down in the narrative for someone to take advantage of the Lannisters' unpopularity. And we see that coming together so very nicely. And by the way, this is part of what Varys fears. He sees the same thing the Tyrells see. He sees, look at that opportunity to come in and be loved. Hey, that's what I'm trying to do. He's like, I want my king, my Prince Aegon to come in and be the one everyone falls in love with. He's the one who's going to bring peace and justice. Not the stinking Tyrells. Another little tidbit historical note from Olena that just makes us want to know more, but we can't know more, not yet. I knew your grandfather, Lord Rickard, though not well. So what? Olena knew Lord Rickard? I mean, even not well. Still, when did they meet? What's that all about? I'm curious. Southern, something that relates to the Southern conspiracy indirectly or directly? Wow. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, and we wonder when this meeting happened. Probably King's Landing, but Maybe not. Maybe uh, going elsewhere. Maybe he's visited the realm, which definitely feeds the idea that it was Southron conspiracy related. Very cool. Yeah, this is it's something I didn't notice about this chapter, it, having read this chapter a bunch of times, but never sitting down to just encapsulate or notate every example of historical detail that Elena throws in here. It's massive, right? Like, I don't need to list it again. All right, we're short on time enough as it is, but it's a great... Thing to think about in this chapter, how detailed it is and how much backstory it contains. More discussion of the concept of, of what comeliness is worth. A lot of people pointed to the concept of that was George's maybe building off of something that came from Shakespeare that actually came from Chaucer and may have come from before that. The phrase, all that glitters is not gold, which is, hey, that really applies to Joffrey Baratheon slash Lannister, doesn't it? Because, you know, gold and all that, they're, they're coloring. So it's a really interesting take to consider uh, what George is leaning into here. It's probably the most discussed thing on Flick, that aspect of it. Um, here's uh, a few other takes from, uh, from Flick and Facebook. Stefan B. nominates the negotiations at Bitterbridge for one of the more important scenes done off page. And yeah, that's a good take. Like, Big negotiations there plotted so much between uh, Littlefinger and Olena and Mace Tyrell and all these other characters. You wonder what else they talked about. And we, got, we get to see basically what happened with the way they, they plot the Purple Wedding and all that. But it's, it would have been cool to see that for sure, to see that on screen. Silver Shade says she still falls for the fairy tale aspect of the Tyrell's offer. She meaning Sansa, not 
silver shades, the commenter here. <laughs> but it's still a big part of helping her learn how she's been used as a pawn later. Very true, very true. Sansa has the opportunity later to think back on how she's been used and to realize what was happening. She's like, wait, they just wanted my claim. Ah, yeah, that's going to happen. And it's going to be a big part of her building political wisdom, her shedding of her naivete. Again, she's freaking 12, y'all. I mean, she's very young still. Nina, with a good catch here, points out that Allery Hightower slash Allery Tyrell offers Santa a bite of boar. A very, very subtle way of suggesting that what they're all doing here is dividing the spoils brought to them by the boar that killed Robert. And lest we forget, Robert wanted that boar served up <laughs> at a feast. So, also Nina mentions another possible inspiration for Luthor's story, him riding off a cliff. There's some real world parallel to that. Again, because we're short on time, I recommend you checking out our Facebook group. She describes that in detail there. Archmaester Rennie actually quotes George R.R. R. Martin himself. Let's have Ashea read that. Too many contemporary fantasies take the easy way out by externalizing the struggle so the, so the heroic protagonists need only smite the evil minions of the dark power to win the day. And you can tell the evil minions because they're inevitably ugly and they all wear black. I wanted to stand much of that on its head. In real life, the hardest aspect of the battle between good and evil is determining which is which. Nice. Yeah, so great job by Archmaster Rennie finding that quote. And it really does explain a lot of what George is trying to do here. And it really refers to that whole all that glitters is gold bit that we were talking about. Now, along those same lines, Mother of Tribbles points out that Tolkien points out this association of bad with ugly and good with beauty is not ubiquitous in the history of fiction. That's very interesting. This is not this whole bad guys look ugly, good guys look good is not is a relatively new thing. I don't mean like the last 20, 40 years, but Tolkien suggests that industrialization is a major factor in pushing that, that current viewpoint because industrialization was an ugly thing that made a lot of nice things. You know, it had a, it had a lot of, it had a dark side, pollution and, and people working jobs for very little pay. Of course, that happened already. But anyway, you get the point. Victor Serge says, I always thought those red, that those uh, red wine twins would duel. Interesting. Does he, he refers to, the, to horror? Er, and, yeah, to, yeah, horror, you know, and hover. And he's horror referring to Eric and Arik. Okay. This idea of them eventually coming to hit, you know. That's an interesting take. Yeah, yeah, I think it is too, actually. And they do argue and compete with each other. We see that. Like, it's not like vicious, but they're competitive with each other, which is, you know, mm. normal for brothers, but still. I like those two, by the way. I've mentioned it before, but they're not unsympathetic. Yeah, they're not. They're, they're not they're, bad kids. And it's a perfect example of this. George made them ugly, but they're yeah. not bad. No. They're, they're maybe not great. People make fun of them and call them horror and slobber, but, yeah. you know, they're not amazing, but they have... They show sympathy for Sansa and show that they don't just, they aren't just terrible people. And they were brave during the riot. Yeah. They were, they yeah. like, they were protective. They were knightly during the riot. So yeah, yeah. that's a great point. So I, I could see maybe each of them swearing to someone different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this, of course, in this scene there, uh, or maybe it's not this scene, but we hear that they're both like madly in love with Marjorie, but <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't be, right? Okay. And let's move on. John one. The gang meets Mance, aka the one where John lies well. And hey, we don't just meet Mance, 
We meet Tormund, yay! And Steer, Magnar of Then. Boo. Val and Dala are in this chapter too, as is Val's husband. Yeah, Val. She doesn't get to talk yet. We don't, we barely meet her and Dala, but it's cool that we see them. It's the first bit. We also get Val's husband, who Jarl, who is dead now, but Longspear Rick, we get him. We get the Weeper. There's another boo, the Weeper. With Sam's chapters adding so many new Night's Watch characters, Beyond the Wall has become really robust and detailed. There's so many characters <laughs> going from you know mid Clash of Kings to now. So many new names have been point, brought up and <laughs> subsequently killed, <laughs> but not all of them. So Beyond the Wall is uh, is become very colorful, but the landscape itself not so much. The world was gray darkness, smelling of pine and moss and cold. Another well-crafted first sentence. It reminds us that the wildlings live in this, that gray darkness, pine and moss and cold pretty much all the time. It shows how tough they are, how strong they are. You've got to be hardy to survive and live in that. But it also, we get the sense that it could clearly be worse. I mean, the cold at the fist is worse than what these group of wildlings are dealing with at the moment, but surely they know that level of cold. We've tried to highlight it when George R. R. Martin gives us little bits of cross-cultural connection with the wildlings and the rest of Westeros because it's building towards that connection being more uh, tangible. There are subtle and not-so-subtle hints that we're all just humans, right? That's a prevailing theme of A Song of Ice and Fire, but it's particularly strong in these chapters. Here's a quote. When your father learned the king was coming, he sent word to his brother, Benjen, on the wall so he might come down for the feast. There is more commerce between the Black Brothers and the Free Folk than you know. And soon enough, word came to my ears as well. It was too choice a chance to resist. Real quick. Yeah. I never noticed until you read that, until you were listing off their names, that, that Val's husband, his name, Jarl Jarl. Yeah. He's Earl. Yeah, he's Earl. Yeah. <laughs> I just, just, it never clicked the for me. The climbing Earl. <laughs> yeah, she was, you know. His name is Earl. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, so we should have had, so Jason Lee should have played him. Hmm. No, he wasn't even in the show. <laughs> there, neither was Val, yeah, right? Hmm. There's another one here, uh, which is Mance singing the uh, Dornishman's Wife songs, that is. As it turns out, Mance is quite solid. Not exceptional as a musician, but, but yeah, solid at singing and playing. And of course, the fact that he's decent in music separates him from most male royals and nobles in general throughout the history of current times of Westeros. Most of them think it beneath them or the province of women or lesser classes. Such is meant to be for them, not by them, right? Nobles are meant to be entertained, not be the entertainers. That's kind of how they see it. Now, there's a few exceptions. Rhaegar, most notably, who from accounts was quite talented, more than, more than Mance, which is one of the many, many reasons why Mance equals Rhaegar is silly. Anyway, Sam also is into music, right? And a good singer, pretty good singer. That's, and that's one of the reasons his father rejected him. So here we have this whole point come full circle. You see that Sam's father is like, that is not for a, a son of House Tarly, especially not a firstborn son. We're not sure what Ares thought of Rhaegar's interest in music, but he definitely wouldn't like this song, The Dornishman's Wife. Ares was notably prejudiced against the Dornish, didn't like that his son married Elia. It's kind of strange given how much say he had in it, but Ares was, <laughs> well, we know Ares was not all there. This cultural attitude towards male nobles and music is a huge part of why John looks to Steer and Tormund when trying to figure out which of them is Mance. He's like, well, it can't be the singer. <laughs> Instead, he looks at the ones who look the most formidable, warrior style. And in that, Mance is sneaky as well because Mance is, 
probably more formidable than any of them, but he doesn't look it. But it's not the worst logic to fall back on for John. It's because John thinking, oh, the wildling must be led by some badass is, yeah. Well, he's not wrong. He just sniffed out the wrong badass. I shouldn't be talking about sniffing asses. But it is a cool way too, even though John's wrong, even though his logic didn't work out, uh, it's, it's a great way to balance the cultural connections with cultural differences. You see John's mistake lead us to a greater point. To be clear, Mance is, right, like I said, a badass. But it's not just his fighting that gives him that designation. Tormund, as he is wont to do, breaks it down nicely and simply. See, lad, that's why he's king and I'm not. I can outdrink, outfight, and outsing him. And my member's thrice the size of his. But Mance has cunning. He was raised a crow, you know. And the crow's a tricksy bird. Low cunning, maybe? <laughs> Interesting. I can outsing him. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's probably his volume. Maybe that's what yeah, he, that's what maybe he his voice is good, good singing. It's just louder. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt shows that he likes John right away. That's clear. But that's also likely the kind of man he is in general, and that means it's not entirely genuine. Matt seems to be the kind of man who extends the silken glove first, but he's ready with that steel gauntlet. He later uses a mixed approach at the wall itself. Attacks, uh, diplomacy, but with the threat of attacks, although with some actual attacks too. Of course, his central mission as king, Mance's, follows the same line of thinking. He would rather Westeros let the wildlings in, and he's willing to negotiate on that front. But if the answer is no, or if the negotiations aren't in good faith, then it's time to attack. Because they have, it's, it's like they're in a life or death situation. The others are coming. If they need to get on the other side of the wall, and there's nothing will stop them. Nothing, they're not going to stop the scruple because it's life or death. So just like it is with Olena's introduction one chapter ago, we see a microcosm of how Mance operates, a miniature example of his greater methods. And again, I'm amazed at George R. R. Martin. This guy, I swear, <laughs> all the layers, we just it never stops. Something else the two have in common, right? Uh, Olena and Mance. They're both nice in part because they want something. As we covered thoroughly, I think, Olena wants Sansa's claim for her grandson and her house. Mance wants John because he wants to bring his people south of the wall, and a son of Winterfell on his side would really help his efforts at diplomacy. But more directly, he wants John's knowledge of the Watch, their manpower, which officers are commanding where, any plans he knows of, all that. And, he, and of course, he later sends John over with the climbers to make a sneak attack on Castle Black. If John had legitimately turned his cloak, that attack would have been vicious and very successful. Uh, but of course, John didn't legitimately turn his cloak and he was able to sabotage that attack much to the wall's great benefit. They're also both very interested in determining if they can actually trust these Starklings. They, I mean, Olena and, Man and Mance. Mance wants inside info on the watch. Olena wants inside info on Joffrey. But before they can accept any information from their target, they have to know that that information is reliable. So they have to quiz this young Starkling and test them and see how honest they are. One major difference is that John really is lying and Sansa is not. Sansa just, she's struggling with fear. And once she gets over that, she tells the truth. Although she doesn't have big secrets to reveal and she doesn't have incentive to lie, John does. John has secrets and reasons to lie. John doesn't have to lie about most of the things he's actually asked about though. That works out really well for him because I don't think John's that good of a liar, but he's able to tell half-truths. And so it works. So when Tormund asks, answers that question meant for John, 
Man says, yeah, I know, Tormund. I just wanted to see if John would lie. I know it was Craster. And Tormund's like, oh. And that's what prompts Tormund's quote about, see, man says cunning. I can outfight. I can do all this. And that's what prompted that quote. So as part of winning him over, Mance reveals to John that he's seen him twice before. It's a great twist that Mance was at the welcoming feast at the start of Game of Thrones because that was seen through John's eyes. And it enables him to tell a convincing lie, again, as I just alluded to, because it's not really a lie. Quote, Prince Joffrey and Prince Tommen, Princess Marcella, my brothers Rob and Bran and Rickon, my sisters Arya and Sansa, you saw them walk the center aisle with every eye upon them and take their seats at the table just below the dais where the king and queen were seated. I remember. And did you see where I was seated, Mance? He leaned forward. Did you see where they put the bastard? And so John, like I said, is not a very good liar. So the fact that he is, is partly true is the reason it works. And it also works really well because it shows so much in common with Mance. Mance also is technically a bastard. Now, so think back to this chapter, though, Game of Thrones 1. John was getting drunk and angry. So who is the they in this case? <laughs> they put him, meaning where did they sit him? Catelyn, <laughs> almost certainly Cersei probably as well, but mostly Catelyn. Whether it was really Catelyn or not, John's going to think it was. John, Ned honestly wouldn't want the conflict either, but he's still, John is going to blame Catelyn and be partly right about that too. So lots of half-truths going on around here, but also during that feast, when they set him in the back, that's when he decided to join the watch. John's bitterness is authentic because it is authentic. <laughs> Mance is a good judge. A character is fooled because he sees that authenticity in John's lies. It's one of those rare times when a smart person is fooled, but a dense person would not be. It's, this is another thing that George is very clever at showing how reality works sometimes. Rattle shirt, not very bright nor is Steer, but mistrusting John was the smartest thing they did since they got off their horses. Well, that's Littlefinger's line, but the point stands. Rattleshirt and Steer would not have read the genuine frustration and sadness in John that Jon Snow was remembering and emoting. They're too dense to catch that emoting in the first place. To them, it would just be words, a story, one they could easily dismiss. Mance is clever enough to be fooled, as ironic as that sounds. Now, now compare this later, though. John lies about the Watch's manpower, and Mance knows it right away. John has no subconscious pain about the Watch's manpower to trick Mance with, so it just immediately fails. That's part of why I say he's not a good liar. The deception flaps. When, when John is put under the spot and has to tell a real lie, he fails. Mance is hard to manipulate, too. It's not just that John isn't a good liar. It's that Mance is too clever to easily be lied to. We see that in his exchanges with Melisandre later, when she has him under his power, or she has him under her power, rather, even then, with Melisandre controlling him, he keeps a lot of his agency. That's just Mance Raider. So before John's story about the royal visit, Mance tells his own story of leaving the watch, the red silk from Ashai. That has certainly some symbolic meaning, and if the wall is a hinge of the world, well, it's neat to think of Mance's red-slashed silk cloak as a hinge of the world of theories, <laughs> because, you know, Ashai is probably a hinge of the world as well. And you got this silk from Ashai all the way on this side of the world. It's pretty cool. You got this full encapsulization. A lot of words have been typed on a lot of forums about this cloak and what it means. We couldn't possibly cover all of it, but I think we can cover a lot of the gist of it and get you on the right track if you're curious about more. I've never seen a Man's Raider cosplay. 
holy crap. Yeah. Me neither. I guess he is very, he's just very simple. But a red slash cloak would be be a dead giveaway. You you could totally, I mean, that and you carry an instrument, especially if you're a musician and you get to play music all over the place. And and he usually, he he prefers to fight with a two-handed sword, which is also a little distinct because that's a big weapon. So anyways, hopefully someone does Mance one day. That's a good idea. And serenades us all. So Mance, let's let's get into this a little farther. Mance, on a simple end, Mance was fed up with the restrictions put on the brothers and he reached a breaking point. He was tired of all the, the little things they have to do, all the major sacrifices that come with being a brother and not, not being able to have love, not being able to do this and that. So this is hearkening back to what Aemon Targaryen told John. Mance chose love over duty. He's an abject servant of duty Meaning that he was born into this. Remember that Mance Raider was born, basically taken by the watch as a kid, as a baby. And that's really interesting because John earlier thinks how he didn't have much of a life part of the wall. He thinks he's a little bitter when Donald Noy, Donald Noy is telling him, this is your life, you know, be this and that. And John's like, well, easy for you to say you had a full life before you got here. But Mance had even less of that. Mance didn't have any life before the watch. So he took that back by leaving. And if I may opine a bit on the nature of the others, the others were also designed apparently for duty uh, to be soldiers for the children, kind of almost automatonic, not really automatonic. Apparently didn't work out maybe as the way the children wanted, but just the same. The others are created for a purpose and they've taken some of that agency back. Mance was literally raised in the watch and he's, he had known no other life and he's taken his agency back. It was probably something in the back of Mance's head for much of his life. He probably just, is this the only life I could have? Am I, do I, am I really stuck in this? But he said the vows and it probably kept him in line. He had all these brothers that he probably liked a lot of the other night's watchmen he was with. Corin talks about how you know, he was popular. And, and it makes sense he would be popular because he, you can see how likable he is. He's, he's friendly, he's genuine, he's talented, he's good at talking, he's musical. There's just a lot to like. And think about the Red Slash as a parallel between the two of them. Now, John has his moment with Ygritte, and that starts to churn the wheels in his mind that the wildlings are people, that they really don't have that much different. They're all just humans on different sides By of the, the way, wall. By the way, yeah. People, some people in the chat say free folk. Wildlings free folk. is offensive. You're, you know what? You all are right. I should say free folk. I don't really think of it as offensive, but you're right. It is. I'll say, I'll try to say free folk. It might be a hard habit to break, but there, <laughs> you're all are right. Thank you for the correction. Great kind of help churn those gears in John's head and start him thinking about the, about the free folk as humans and, and as having less difference than he first thought. Bale the Bard is a major connecting point there. So it's supposed to be considered in light of Mance because Mance sings Bale the Bard. He's aware of that song. He's a big singer of it. Corin points that out. And it was a, a, a grit. A woman with, a, with red hair helps kind of push John towards this direction and come to find out Mance because of some red silk and a woods witch, the same red is present. It could be that, and this woods witch quite possibly is what showed Mance this other side. He's like, he had an intimate moment. I'm not saying he slept with this woods witch. He may have, very possible. But it was like, this isn't my, this woman helped me for no reason other than she wanted to. For no other reason, she felt a calling as a healer 
which is something that a sentiment that maybe people wouldn't expect exists beyond the wall. They don't think, a lot of people wouldn't think that such a piece of sympathy, something, something so powerful like a healer healing someone because they're, they have that call, they, wouldn't, they would not expect that that would exist outside of civilization, their view of civilization. But that kind of thing is perfectly reasonable to happen amongst the free folk but when people like John and Mance discover it, it changes who they are. They realize, well, I've been wrong. I've been told, I've been taught to think of the free folk as my enemy, as a bitter enemy all this time. But really, they're just people and we have a lot in common with them. And that's all going to, of course, this is all leading to that culmination of the, while, of the free folk joining with John and, and the rest of the brothers with plenty of friction along the way. But also this red silk and this, this bit of a grit awakening a fire within him, it has extra meaning in John's case because he has a hidden fire of House Targaryen in him as well. So this is a scene rich with subtext and parallels between the two. George R. R. Martin keeps it as hazy as possible by making the commander of the Shadow Tower, Sir Dennis Malister, a stickler for rules and tradition, which hides the fact that Mance had his own reasons for leaving. It shows that this, that Mance was dealing with a particularly, like I said, stickler for rules. So someone who was like very strict with him. So like if maybe if Mance had been raised under a different commander, someone who was a little slacker with the rules and allowed some of these other things to happen, maybe Mance wouldn't have run off. Later in the book, we learn this though. We learn about these things about Sir Dennis. It's not, it's not clear that Sir Dennis Malister is such a stickler, such a by-the-book, letter-of-the-law kind of guy, which makes Mance's departure, his going AWOL, it just gives another angle to it. And of course, later, Sir Dennis is going to run for Lord Commander, and that's when Sam finds courage to like lie to him and Cotter Pike and all that. Cloak aside... Mance has that raven-winged helm. That also inspired a lot of discussion, perhaps not as much, but ravens are certainly a symbol of the old gods. Mostly it's just a cool helmet. That's another thing that could be part of the cosplay that would really help it stand out, the raven-winged helm. This is a good time for me to mention that um, Dom T pointed out that Brian, he has done a Mance. Brian, I uh, did a did Yeah, a Mance? apparently back in like 2015 oh, okay. or something like that. Um, I didn't know that. And maybe he's, yeah, I think 2015. And so apparently... Um, John Hagee also said that he saw a burning at the stake manse at Con of Thrones. What? I haven't seen the picture yet. He said he was going to post it and I'm just Whoa. waiting and waiting. We were at that Con of Thrones, I know. whichever one it was. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> seen it. I'm dying to see that one. But no, so there are at least two. We need cool. more though. Logistically speaking, we're not sure when Mance actually deserted the watch, but it seems to be more than 10 years prior to the scene because it happened before G.R. Mormont took over as Lord Commander, and that was 288, so 10, 11 years ago. So at least 10, 11 years ago, probably before that. Maybe more like 20. Mance is not young. He's not old, but he's not young. Uh, Mother Tribble says to help keep our canon straight, show Mance is not portrayed as much of a warrior, and John's lie to Mance is that he was disgusted by Lord Commander Mormont and the others turning a blind eye to Craster giving his son to the White Walkers. I.e., John's lie to Mance in the show is he says, I want to fight for the side that's fighting for the living. That's fine. I, I, like, I think that's a reasonable way for the show to change it. I kind of prefer the book version because it's a little more subtle, but it definitely worked on the show. I think that was fine. And it... And it, and it the good thing was that they kept captured the essence of John's lie, which is that it's a lie that is believable and it's part truth. Because John was pissed off by the John was like very disturbed to learn that not only Lord Commander Mormont, but Benjen 
was apparently tolerating this. And that was a real wake-up call for John. So I, I, I didn't mind that change too much on the show. Tree Girl says uh, she wants us to recognize how big a deal Mance leaving, uh, leaving the watch is seen to the, to the free folk. He's a living legend to them. It's, it's really, it is hard to, to overstate this, and it really does deserve more attention. So he was born by a wild, uh, beyond the wall by a wildling woman fathered by a ranger. He was taken and raised by the hated watch, but returned to the, to the free folk in the end. He chose the free folk in the end. That's a big deal. He was with the watch for that long, but ultimately he decided his real people were the free folk, and that's huge. And he has all this charm and charisma and skills to back it up. So it's just a triple, he's a triple threat. We would dearly love to know the story of the Lord Commander that Mance served under, the one just before GR, who is this uh, Lord Corgile. That's a house from the deepest deserts of Dorne. They have scorpions on their banner, and, and they are the house believed responsible for the famous scorpions from the ceiling incident, which came after King Daron the, the, the first, the young dragon, inexplicably appointed a Tyrell to govern Dorne. Hello, that's, that's not very smart. It is unusual, one would think, for Dornish lords to take the black in general, uh, is what I'm saying here. Nina, great take here, suggested it might be this Lord Corgile have been a part of the Blackfire rebellions. The Blackfires supposedly had the Ironwoods and other, some other Dornish houses is backing them even in the fourth Blackfire rebellion as well as the third. And Lord Corgile said to be old, so maybe he went up there, he went up there during the Blackfire rebellions uh, and then later rose to be Lord Commander, which is interesting to consider because if he had gone after the fourth Blackfire rebellion, that means he would have been uh, a soldier in the Night's Watch under Bloodraven, <laughs> who was in the other side prominently of the Blackfire Rebellions. That could have caused for some awkward conversations, if that's indeed the case. For all we know, Lord Corgile could be at the wall for some entirely other reason. But generally being on the wrong side of the rebellion is a reason why a lord who isn't northern ends up there. Because lords going to the wall is rare, even in the north. In the south, especially Dorne, that's crazy. It's pretty neat that George put the lyric, all men must die in the Dornishman's wife lyrics. I don't really have anything other, this, other to say about that, just that he threw that Valor Morgulis in there. I think it's pretty cool. Another piece of cultural connection is presented with the notion that a wildling woman saved Mance's life when he was in the watch. I touched on this briefly, but she adheres to this universal code found in society's immemorial in the real world. Some people are just seemingly born to heal and they don't judge the person they are healing friend, foe, they're all one under the sun. Miri Mazdor had this attitude, even though it becomes twisted and, you know, there's some darkness behind it. But that's basically the, the, op, the, the auspice she was operating under and probably how she lived most of her life. And it's interesting that Miri Mazdor learned much of her healing in Ashai, the same place this uh, red silk in Mance's cloak came from. It's a lot of connections to Ashai from this point. It's really interesting. And I think that's neat. I mean, the Hippocratic Oath is uh, very much touches on this. I, I encourage y'all to look it up. I didn't go quote it myself, but it talks about doing no harm and, and healing as a, as a calling, things like that. It's, it's really interesting. And it's, a, it's a, a thing that happens in people that is, it's great that people like this exist. Like, let me tell you, where would we be without people born to feel the call to heal or the call to teach or the call to a lot of things, really. Axel Erickson 
on Facebook points out that Val and the Weeper are two rare examples of blonde wildlings. Yeah, that's a very good, very good point. Val is blonde, and a lot is made out of that because blondness is rare among the wildlings. Blondness is generally a trait associated with Andal blood, not first men blood. And of course, the wildlings, the free folk, pardon me, are mostly first men blood. But this is so long in the past, it would, there would have to be blonde genes have made it up that far by now. So I don't think we need to get too deep with the theorizing on that. There have been plenty of Andals sent to the wall, plenty of Andals marrying it, and fathering children with, with free folk, etc. To be fair, it does point to Val having within a couple generations a, a non-free folk blood. Oh, I agree. It definitely points to something. I just don't think it points to like like her parent isn't necessarily not from beyond the wall, but I think her grandparents or great grandparents had to be. Yeah, you're right. I would think so. That's, that seems very like maybe not, maybe not. But but it's there's a good chance. It's technically possible that it could have the, the the blonde line could have continued longer. But considering how much everyone is going to be dark haired, yeah, it's, it seems very unlikely to. What me. I'm more pushing back against is the idea that it's. Valyrian or plot significant. Yeah, or plot. Yeah, yeah, it's not probably. It's probably not plots. It's probably her parents. It's an interesting point, not a a big important plot point to be revealed yeah. later. Yeah, cool. John Hagee wants us to think more about that comment from Mance that there's lots of commerce between the brothers and the and the free folk. That is very interesting. You wonder how much they talk between each other and and how how these channels operate. Like Mance says, he learned about the king's visit to the wall or to Winterfell through these channels. And you wonder who they are. It's it's not unrealistic at all, though. Even in real world, World War One, for example, you had Germans and and uh, French and and all the other allies. Just when they weren't actively fighting, every once in a while they would trade. The Civil War it happened in the American Civil War. Yankees and and uh, Confederates would trade, would swap gear because both armies were poorly supplied. They would trade. Like one side might have some cigarettes and some different bits of food. The other side would have their bits of, they would meet and share. The officers didn't like that too much, but the, the hum, humanity comes out during war. Uh, personally, it makes me think of that along to that discussion we've had um, and researched and stuff like that on the channel about the brothers and where they make their money. Oh. And George has, has commented on that. Like, you know, they go to Molestown and stuff like that. And he's talked about how they, you know, have other methods of making money. And I could easily see hmm. some of the brothers having a black market, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, to sell some free folk some <laughs> goods and then they earn some money or maybe they get some things from them. I don't know. It doesn't seem like the free folk have a lot of money. Yeah, both and, and not, both the Night's Watch and the Free Folk are constantly like not having all the stuff they need. So you can yeah. see them like help. Bartering is probably more relevant. Yeah. But that said, the brothers definitely need some money. Also, with uh, just as a, as a side note to this whole Val and, and the blondness and, and the trade, Davos talks about how you know smugglers will go up and trade with the wildlings and, and how that's heavily policed. But the Night's Watch isn't super robust in their ability to, to stop such things. But Davos once thinks about, you know, one of his, one of the guys he served under selling weapons to the wildlings. So that's another example where it isn't just the brothers having trade with the, with the free folk, but people just elsewhere from far away occasionally come and trade with them. And sometimes they do it to steal slaves, but sometimes it's more on the up and up minus the, the watch's prohibition. That's all I have for John one. Let us move on to Daenerys one. 
The gang goes to Slaver's Bay, a.k.a. the one where Jorah gets frisky. Technically, they don't go to Slaver's Bay. They just decide to. The entire chapter is spent at sea, and that suits us very well because it means story time. We get tales of Rhaegar, with mention of Arthur Dane and John Connington, some bits of dragon lore, Unsullied versus Dothraki at Kohor, some conspiracy theories laid out by Jorah, and it starts like this. Across the still blue water came the slow, steady beat of drums and the soft swish of oars from the galleys. I've said it before and will now say it again. One huge advantage of the book versions of Danny's chapters have over the show version is how much more the Dothraki are part of the story. A small but meaningful moment comes early in this chapter. Long quote coming. Her Dothraki called the sea the poison water, distrusting any liquid that their horses could not drink. On the day the three ships had lifted anchor at Karth, you would have thought they were sailing to hell instead of Pentos. Her brave young blood riders had stared off at the dwindling coastline with huge white eyes. Each of the three determined to show no fear before the other two, while her handmaids, Eerie and Jiki, clutched the rail desperately and retched over the side at every swell. The rest of Danny's tiny calisar remained below decks, preferring the company of their nervous horses to the terrifying landless world about the ships. When a sudden squall had enveloped them six days into the voyage, she heard them through the hatches, the horses kicking and screaming, the riders praying in thin, quavery voices each time Balerion heaved or swayed. Real quick, hmm. you, it really says a lot they would stay down there with the horses considering how much that has to smell. <laughs> like, God they love damn. the smell of horses. <laughs> like, yeah, in, in close, confined <laughs> quarters. Remember what... Um... Cotter, uh, not Cotter, but Dagmar Cloughshaw says, what do we want horses for? Horses would just get in our way and shit on our decks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, here we go. <laughs> so a key word here is tiny when applied to her calisar, because this foreshadows the difficulty she may have later when trying to bring a truly gigantic calisar across the sea. Some of them have, will draw bravery directly from Danny herself, as good leaders often do. Courage from above can do a lot of emboldening of those uh, lower down on the rank chain. And no one's, you know, above Danny in her chain there. And in some, in terms of the sea and storms, not only does Danny have an extremely strong sense of destiny and confidence in general, but she very clearly has a positive association with storms. I mean, she was born during one, and people call her Stormborn. She likes that name, and why not? It's awesome, <laughs> like Stormborn. Hell, I wish people called me that. <laughs> so Drogon, a much less cool name than Stormborn, but a very cool yet hot creature, flies off by himself to the point he can't be seen. This reminds me of Summer going off to hunt, or ghost, but there's a huge difference as well. The wolves would not leave for long, while Drogon eventually goes off to live on the Thraki Sea, because there's no skin changer bond. Not only are wolves a little more loyal than, you know, reptiles, but their skin changer magical bond is, is more powerful on that side as well. But still, there's a lot of parallels between the wolves and dragons, and this is one of them. Now, I mentioned that there was some dragon lore, and here's a bit of it. Balerion the Black Dread was 200 years old when he died during the reign of Jaehaerys the Conciliator. He was so large he could swallow an oryx whole. A dragon never stops growing, your grace, so long as he has food and freedom. Yeah, there's also talk about the dragon pit. I mean, that's what a big part of this is referring to is food and freedom. The freedom part is, is related to the dragon pit. Nina made a great post on the group. I definitely can't go through it all here, but she went through all the dragons and uh, talked about his claim 
that they were bred for war and talked about the sizing and things like that. So like I said, too much detail for us to go into here, but I, I recommend checking that out. And I also recommend checking out our dragons episode during our, which we did during our Fire and Blood series. A lot of this little detail is captured there. Short version, Jorah is missing a lot of the nuance, but he's mostly right. He's mostly accurate on what he says here. No one wants to see a Kraken on screen more than me. A real Kraken, not Greyjoys, although I like seeing them on screen too. <laughs> Some, so the events of the Forsaken, plus other mentions of Kraken sightings throughout the books give me hope. This one, however, I think this is more of a metaphor. Quote, in the Seven Kingdoms, there are tales of dragons who grew so huge that they could pluck giant krakens from the seas. Danny laughed. That would be a wondrous sight to see. It is only a tale, Khaleesi. It would be a wondrous sight to see, though. Danny's not wrong. <laughs> but yeah, it is probably just a tale because that's kind of absurd to think. Even Balerion couldn't lift a, a kraken from the sea. It's not reverse psychology. George isn't doing that reverse psychology thing where actually we are going to see this. Krakens are too big for that. So I, that's why I think it's a metaphor. I do think that Danny will probably pluck Victorian or maybe Euron from the sea, maybe both in, in metaphorically speaking, like defeat them. Uh, but maybe more directly Victorian because that's, uh, she might take his fleet and use that to bring her so-called huge Kalasar across the sea. So... Euron's plucking may come later, but we'll have to see on that. This rabbit hole takes us down even further if we let it, such as considering this scene, meaning dragons and the sea, with the ancient ironborn myths surrounding the sea dragon Naga. Hmm. Naga's bones are where the king's moots take place. Euron wins the crown amidst the bones of a long-dead dragon while proclaiming he has a horn, enabling him to steal a living one. Naga's living flame. The legend says Grey King made Naga's living flame his thrall. An ironborn king trying to enslave a dragon's power sounds awfully familiar. And this is the book where Euron enters the story after all. He's been mentioned prior to this book, but this is when he starts to do things, even if most of it's kind of done off page and sneaky. But he is being set up to be huge. And the idea that there might be an undead dragon in the, in the books is certainly referred to by this notion of having this really important ceremony where taking dragons and discussion of dragons is so prominent with the dragon horn and all that amidst dragon bones. So, yeah, there could be something there. This is also the first chapter that has the use of the word dracaris. The dragons are burning their own meat now. Drag, Jan, Danny no longer has to heat the meat for them. And it's kind of, you know, just a little sign of them growing larger. Might be reading too much into this, but in that scene where Danny is feeding them, the green dragon tries to steal something bestowed by their parent from the black dragon. The black dragon was receiving something given by the parent, and the green dragon tries to steal it. Hello, Dance of the Dragons. Viserys I bestows his crown on his daughter the black dragon faction and the green dragon steals it. Mm, interesting. Also the color of Tyrion's eyes. Of course, that's uh, never, we should never forget that. And of course, Tyrion heading to Danny. All that ties together somehow, somehow, probably. So we get the cohort story. This is an interesting one. Um, the story of the, the cohort hiring 
some Unsullied that beat the Dothraki. One thing about the story that really sticks out to me is he says they marched from, from, from Astapor all the way to Kohor. If you look at a map, that is insane. <laughs> that map is a really long march. I just, it, I have a hard time. It's not that they, they couldn't do it. Of course they can. They're Unsullied. They could march all the way there and back several times. They're insanely tough. The point is how long it would take them to get there. The cohort's like, yeah, we need to hire some dudes to come here to fight for us, but we're going to wait for them to march across this entire Asia-sized continent. I feel like they were probably shipped there. The point is, it's interesting to, to hear the, how strong the Unsullied are and how Jorah's selling them, despite the fact that they're slave soldiers. It's like this guy hasn't learned anything about slavery and about what Danny thinks about these things. He knows Danny doesn't like slavery, but he leans into this anyway. And we also get interesting mention of the Second Sons and the Bright Banners. The Bright Banners aren't terribly important, but the Second Sons are mentioned as part of this anecdote of the 3,000 Unsullied at Kohor. By the way, 3,000 Unsullied fighting against a much larger foe, and they're all infantry with their locked shields and their spears. Very, very likely a reference to the 300 of Sparta. So Jorah lists off some conspiracy theories here. Let's go through them real quick. He's like, maybe you shouldn't trust Arstan and Belwas. Bad theory. Illyrio is not to be trusted. Eh, okay, good theory. Illyrio will accept it if you take his stuff and start making moves. Also a good theory. That works out. Joffrey is after you just as his father was. Bad theory. We know that his father wasn't really after him either, and he's also not his father, but that's not the point. Uh, also, Jorah saying, there is no man in all the world who will ever be so half true, so true to you as me. Very bad theory. This is Jorah leaning into the classic, it's you and me against the world, kid. It's so common in movies and books and actually like nonfiction, like books about how to pick up women. This is really common refrain. Just it's framed as the way hunting is that's how you know it's predatory because so often you like find find the girl who's sitting alone and separated and isolated and then emphasize that and then she'll become beholden to you this is very straightforward predatory psychology being displayed by jorah here it's extremely straightforward but danny doesn't danny senses it's sort of what's going on but she's too young to have this worldly view of how common this type of behavior is from men. But she's also seen it before, not in a romantic setting, but her brother really pushed this, it's you and me against the world kind of thing too, and told a lot of lies along the way with regards to that. So here's where we come back to the bear and the maiden fair. Jorah most surely won't be one of the heads of the dragon. It's definitely worth considering the idea that she could marry two people at once and of course, we all want to know who else will ride a dragon. John seems overwhelmingly likely. That third head is tricky. However, I definitely don't think it's Jorah. I do think, interestingly, considering the deep symbology of the, of the bear and the maiden fair. You know, fair, real quick, Aziz, you know, sure. some people threw the book after the red wedding. Yeah. This would be my red wedding. I would throw the book if Danny married Jorah. <laughs> yeah, seriously. That is, Yeah. <laughs> You know, interestingly, this is kind of an aside, but I was talking about the black and the green and, and the dance of the dragons and how, yeah. well, that's, that's, that's the Mormont colors, black and green. Yeah. Never made yeah. that connection either. That is interesting. Mm. Yeah. Jorah doing his thing and Viserys kind of leaning into that as well. And uh, the idea, one thing that's interesting is that the Targaryens supposedly, not supposedly, definitely bred 
in part with each other because of the whole dilution of the blood. Now that's, on the metaphorical side, that's a ridiculous thing because noble blood is just blood. But on the magical side, that does have meaning because there's apparently actual supernatural connection to dragon blood within them. And that, that might actually matter if that gets, quote unquote, diluted in terms of their ability to control dragons. Never mind that controlling dragons is probably not a good thing, but logistically speaking, that is how it functions. So the idea that, that the bear is trying to lick the honey from her hair strikes me as like a diluting her, what makes her special, diluting her power. Like if she marries Jorah, really gross. it is gross. Like the idea that she would be with Jorah is gross. So yeah. maybe I don't need to lean into it anymore. It's already so self-explanatory, but I just, I like the nuance and how George writes it and how like if she didn't have this, he's making her less special. She's, she's the special one and don't, don't be with him. <laughs> he's, he's useful for sure. He gives her lots of good advice, but also it's mixed in with the bad advice. Good thing she's pretty good at telling the one from the other. So here's a hugely funny moment, turning away from Jorah to a, a knight who's a lot more, a lot less gross, a lot more, <laughs> and provides us with lots more interesting backstory. And it's, this is funny too. This is, it's also completely impossible to catch on your first read. Let's read the quote. The sword of the morning, said Danny, delighted. Viserys used to talk about his wondrous white blade. He said Sir Arthur was the only knight in the realm who was our brother's peer. Whitebeard bowed his head. It is not my place to question the words of Prince Viserys. He's actually, he's basically saying, well, actually, um, Barrett and the Bold, he was the knight in the realm who was Rhaegar's peer. Uh, everyone said so. <laughs> and he's got a point. He's right. Barristan, he's telling the truth. Like Barristan really is on that level. None other than George R. R. Martin himself says that a Barristan versus Arthur Dane match is a toss-up without Dawn. Give, give uh, Arthur Dawn and, Jor- and, and Arthur has the edge. <laughs> That's my pun, not his. Uh, I don't think he would claim that one. It's too bad. He, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't resort to such pitiful punnery. But imagine, imagine Arthur with the two-handed, uh, with, with Dawn and Barristan with Valyrian Steel uh, uh, as well. So not as well, but which would be a match for Dawn. I love Barristan's other evasive answers about her father and her brother. It was said no one ever knew Prince Rhaegar truly. <laughs> and then he says this one. Did you find him good and gentle? Whitebeard did his best to hide his feelings, but they were there, plain on his face. His grace was often pleasant. So yeah, so he's, he's kind of not trying to say everything he knows about Rhaegar and, and Ares and already Barristan's suspicious of who he is. So if he starts going deeper with his knowledge, then it's going to give away who he is, which, you know, Barristan's already worried about that because he asked George, like, you don't recognize me? I'm like, okay. And of course, we also know that Barristan's disguise is really pretty weak. He calls himself Arston, which is his father's name. <laughs> and it's just, you know, yeah, Barristan's not known for his cunning or his creativity. No low cunning from Barristan here. <laughs> also in this chapter is the very peculiar and interesting and heavily theorized and discussed line from Rhaegar saying one day he woke up and said, it seems I must be a warrior. A big, important piece of a much larger picture that is all the things that led Rhaegar to do the things he did, a portrait that is very incomplete even now. We still don't know a lot of what Rhaegar's motivations were, why he did what he did, and it's going to be interesting to find those things out. Um, so George is teasing some of that here. This is, this is a big piece of that. 
I don't want to get too deep into that specifically, just to draw your attention to how this is all being built up at this point, starting now. Some notes from you guys and a note from Joe Buckley. Daenerys's first storm chapter begins with Daenerys being happy, free, in control, and ends with someone trying to bottle and exploit that for their own gains. That's a great take here. Um, his take continues, as has happened so many times and will do again. Luckily, Daenerys is far too along her path to queen, as queen and, and slave saver for Jorah to be able to manipulate her too much. Of course, he still can manipulate her somewhat, but she is a child of destiny and she believes that confidently. So Jorah's whole let's run off and be together line is just never going to cut it. Even Jorah's given up on that mostly at this point. He, he's not thinking she'll run off with him if she hires the Unsullied. So he's already pushing the Unsullied at this point. So he's changed his tune away from let's run off together to let me be one of the heads of the dragon. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Danny thinks of Viserys with sadness, acknowledging that he was cruel and stupid, but there were tender moments as well, which is part of why she finds, you know, this is sort of the same thing with Jorah in a lot of ways that there's a lot of bad there, but there's also a lot of good. And, and she, when Jorah's gone, she misses that good aspect, just like She's missing Viserys right now, which kind of, on one hand, it's like, really, she misses him? But yeah, this is, this, this is part of the problem with Danny's life right now, is that she hasn't had a lot of love in her life. Just like we talked about with Tyrion, she clings to, the, to these memories of Viserys because she's, there's little else better for her to cling. If she had better loving memories, she'd certainly be thinking of those instead of Viserys. But that's like all she has. She can think of Drogo, but there's so much sadness with that too. And the more she gets older, probably the more she's going to realize that her relationship with Drogo was, yeah, there are some major, major problems there. But still, she came out of that strong and with purpose and confidence. It's a lot. It's very interesting to consider like all the love that a character like Bran has, all the protection and, and their upbringing versus someone like Tyrion or Danny, And you see why that starts to bring them together. And then you see a character like John, who's in the middle. John is has a lot of this rejection, a lot of this identity issue, a lot of this being pushed to the side because of who he is. But he also has a lot of the love and support that Danny didn't have because he at least had a family and brothers who were good to him and sisters who were good to him. So John's kind of in the middle of that. And George is playing with all these themes to connect these characters and to give them things to have in common that will bring them together later when there's great conflict about and these human elements are, are like life preservers. They're like the lifeline of what makes them human. They do not want to lose that when the world is just so cruel and dark and terrible. Stefan B. points out that another little Barristan moment that's pretty fun to, to catch. He says, the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard sits on the small council and, uh, well, Barristan sat on the small council. So he's, again, referring to himself obliquely. But that's a difference from the show. The show had Barristan removed from the small council. I, I think that was fine. Um, it's probably difficult for the show people to go, why does Barristan not know more about this? And why does he not have this information? Well, that they just sold the, the reason that Robert didn't fully trust Barristan because he was on the other side during the war. That's, yeah, that makes some sense. Uh, Robert's personality was more about being forgiven and taking people in. So, and that, so I prefer that version. The show did their thing and it's not too bad in that case. 
All right. That is all for Danny One. Almost all these themes are going to be con- continuous. So we'll have plenty more opportunities to discuss any of these little bits that if you think I missed, we'll be able to come back to them. Nothing here is, uh, is terribly is being left behind. And as usual, we don't want to get too, uh, too far ahead of ourselves. It's always tempting. But we won't. One new little thing I'm going to be doing is pointing out how much we covered in terms of audiobook length, which these chapters are, and point out how long the video is. That way, those of you who listen to the podcast version can get a sense of how much was edited out of the video version, get a little bit of an idea. So, it is uh, 5.42 here in Atlanta. We started at just after 3. So, 2 hours and 42 minutes roughly for the video version. The podcast version will be a little bit shorter, somewhere between 5 and 10 minutes shorter on average. All right, so next week we have Brand One, The Gang Heads North, a.k.a. Brand's Warg Addiction. <laughs> Davos 2, The Gang Meets Edric Storm, a.k.a. the one where Davos goes to jail. Jamie 2, the one where Jamie remembers Kingslaying, a.k.a. The Gang Avoids an Ambush. Tyrion 2, the one where Tyrion's firings are undone, a.k.a. Tyrion's Shay Addiction. Mm, lots of addictions going around. Arya 2, the gang is captured by the Brotherhood, a.k.a. the one where Harwin recognizes Arya. I look forward to bringing those chapters to life for y'all with Ashea's wonderful help. She, as always, does a million things off camera all at once. She is... The Greyjoys are not her favorite house, but as I often say, she resembles one with her many arms. Can I say two things? One, we had a long, lively discussion. Well, not that long. A lively discussion about Krakens. Oh, cool. In the chat. People were uh, asking about how big they were compared to squids and where the line is. And I did some research. Mm-hmm. There's the giant squid, which is like 33 feet. Ooh. And then there's the rare colossal squid, which there's only been one uh, specimen found mm. deep under Antarctica. But those are much larger. So the kraken's more similar to that. Okay. Anyways, it's a aside, but I learned more about krakens than myself today. Very cool. I also, I have to apologize Every time I'm slow to read a quote, it's because I have to reach with different hands and I don't have great hand-eye coordination. So I'm like reaching <laughs> with the wrong hand. And it, it's that that's my excuse. Well, that's one of the things uh, that uh, to promote the podcast version, a lot of those little gaps are cut out. So yeah. you, don't, you don't actually sound like you're taking a long time on the Good. podcast version. <laughs> and most of them you get there quickly anyway, because you are you you are skilled. Despite your words just now, you're very skilled at this. <laughs> and also thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the maps behind me, for helping us uh, with various things, and definitely encourage you to join our Facebook group to check out the artwork of his maps and to potentially become a model for one of the uh, character portraits. A lot of people in in the fandom in our group, including me and Ashea, have been on his maps as months. Also, thank you to Joe Buckley for his great takes this week, and another... um, I encourage you further to check out Isle of Faces podcast, the Scraps and Scrolls editions. A lot of stuff that he put in this document I wasn't able to relay to you, and I want you guys to get it, so check his show out. Also, thanks to our History of Westeros mods and all the regular contributors. You guys make this so much better than it would be if it was just us trying to work on it on our own. And thanks to the wider fandom for creating a lot of these ideas that we've maybe expanded on or borrowed or at least put in front of you because this is a big, robust, and diverse community, and we love that. So, until next time, everyone, Valar Reredus. 